The following podcast is proudly brought to you by Vite Ramen. Use the link in the description and use offer code BROKENSILICON to get 10% off tasty, healthy, and easy-to-make ramen. And also use the offer code BROKENSILICON to get 25% off windows, keys, and die shrink to get 3% off everything else on the website at cdkeyoffer.com. Now on with the show. Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and today I am joined actually once again this year by one of my favorite, yeah, honestly, yeah, just one of my favorite people to talk to. Uh, you always, he always brings really in depth re- thought into anything, even if it's a subject that's usually not covered on his channel, which is, of course, needs almost no introduction to hardware unboxed. Um, but yeah, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, hey, it's uh, Tim from Hardware Unboxed here. I'm, I guess this is my third podcast I'm doing with you guys, I think. Third or third, fourth? fourth, something like that. I've been on a few times anyway, and yeah, I've always enjoyed chatting with you, so I guess I'm back to talk about whatever's been going on. Yeah, I mean, usually I try to get you on at some point around either monitor, like image quality testing or laptop release or unveiling news because that's typically what you specialize in if you will at hardware unboxed right yeah uh, i think that's probably most of the content that i make throughout the years on either of those two things obviously the the image quality stuff doesn't come up too often uh maybe it'd be nice to get a few more things coming through there but yeah monitors i spend a lot of my time doing that sort of stuff so yeah, I'm sure there'll be a few questions that we'll chat about that today. Let's just start with the monitor questions. Kunahoon25 writes in and he says, Hey, Tom and Tim, I would like to know why are 32-inch 4K 144Hz monitors so expensive when they aren't even that good? Right now, I can buy an Aorus F048U and a LG C148-inch for under $1,000, and they are far superior, at least in my opinion, to any other 4K monitors on the market right now, but in many cases, they're cheaper and better than the competition. When do you think we'll really start getting better 4K 32-inch monitors with HDMI 2.1 support and at least HDR600 in the $700 to $750 range? With the launch of RDNA 3 and Lovelace around the corner, you would think these companies would want to make 4K gaming more accessible ahead of time to gamers. Uh, yeah, you'd think so. I mean, a lot of these things come down to the, the competition in the, the monitor space. I think, you know, how many people are using a 48-inch TV in place of a 32-inch monitor? I'm sure there's some people. Uh, but luckily, I think we're not that far away. We have seen some 4K 144-inch monitors of that size hit like 700 ish dollars, $750. I think there's the gigabyte m32u something like that that's around that i don't think it's hdr 600 but you know, i was gonna H- say hdr rankings um, um around christmas time uh, co-host of broken silicon dan i it was a, it was a deal it was quite a bargain i thought but we i managed to like convince my parents to like chip in 
for a Christmas present for him that was like an 800 I want to say, 850 to, I think it was $800 monitor, and it was 4K, 144 hertz, HDMI 2.1, latest USB-C, which can also run 4K, 144 hertz over at HDR. I think 600, I could tell when I plugged in a console, the HDR did look better on this HDR monitor yeah. as opposed to the one I have. So that was $800 last year. I think we're getting close if that's your bar. Yeah, I think so. And I think once we, you know, obviously recently we've had the the Samsung QD OLED and and those sort of products. Once we start getting more of those, the, these products will get a lot cheaper. But even in the past year, like the pricing of 4K monitors has come down a lot. Um, we've had launches that have hit, you know, not not for 32 inches in size, but you can get pretty good monitors for like $600 these days for 4K, 144 hertz. So, yeah, we're not too far away with this at all, I don't think. Yeah, and I think at that pricing, like around 600 to 750 is where I stop feeling like I'm getting fleeced by these companies. Yeah. Could it yeah. maybe be cheaper relative to like a 4K 120 hertz OLED TV, smart TV? Maybe, but at least it's like, Typically, 33% to 50% less, even if it's not OLED. At least we're paying less for less at this point, I would say, whereas yeah. we were paying yeah. more for less, actually, a <laughs> few years ago. Yeah, for sure. FPGTA writes in, and he says, Hey, Tom and Tim, this question is more directed towards Tim. In the coming two years, we are going to have an abundance of display technologies to choose from. Just to list them for due diligence, there's IPS, TN, VA, MicroLED, QD OLED, WLED, and even true RGB OLED in 2023. It's going to be an exciting time for people who have been waiting for a massive change in the display tech space. Which of these new technologies do you expect to gain a foothold in the market? And which of the old ones do you expect to fade into the annals of history oh it's an interesting question I, I think tn is pretty much at the end of its life we don't really see too many more releases these days you know even the like super fast 360 hertz displays hit ips first so i think you know tn we could pretty much call it a day on that one except for some very specific products you know when it comes to the, all the oled tech you know, i I don't know which one of those is going to come out on top because, I mean, we've got what, like one QD OLED ultra-wide monitor. We've got zero, what I would class as sort of monitor-sized W OLEDs. And then obviously RGB OLED is, you know, we haven't really seen any gaming options for that yet. So, you know, I, I think for calling that as which one of those is going to take over, we're just going to have to wait and see which products end up being the best for monitors. Like, obviously, my preference would be RGB OLED because for text, you get the nice sort of clarity there. But if they can't get, you know, the brightness up or burn in's too much of an issue, then, you know, there's, there's so many different considerations there. But I think for the LCD-based stuff, IPS has really mm. dominated the market in the last couple of years. Uh, VA is sort of... There used to be more higher-end options, but there were obviously lots of issues with them aside from a few select products. And it just doesn't seem like there's been that much innovation aside from like the Odyssey G7 from Samsung, which is a bit of a surprise. So I think, yeah, IPS is probably going to be the one that wins out there and certainly is winning at the moment. Uh, and then, yeah, MicroLED doesn't even... Yeah, I mean, don't know when that's actually going to hit reasonable <laughs> products. It's just not, seems to always be, you know, three years in the future. So we'll see about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's as bad as quantum computing. But when people ask me yeah. about micro LED, it's like, again, OLED TVs were shown off by LG in 2012. And it took them how long for them to really become a real technology? So 
from my perspective, it's funny how much I was going to say, like, I think I just see IPS everywhere and I see VA less and less. I feel like IPS is just going to be the budget standard. OLED is going to probably become more common if they deem us worthy of getting it for a reasonable price in the monitor space. And then micro LED, I just again, I. I don't know. Where's self-driving cars? They're not everywhere by 2020 either. So we'll, we'll see yeah. when that comes. They probably will come, but I don't know when micro-LED will be standard. Um, Tired Gaming Dad writes in. He says, hello, TNT. I couldn't pass up asking Tim some thoughts on monitor solutions for my specific needs. I suffer from simulation sickness with many first-person shooters like Minecraft, Bioshock Infinite, Doom 2016, and Gears 5, to name a few. The only things that seem to help me... Uh, is reducing screen tearing as and drop frames as much as possible and being able to adjust mouse acceleration to a very slow rate and disable motion blur. Even then, though, I still can't play many games I would like to enjoy uh, for more than about 30 minutes. I did upgrade to a mid-range 1440p 140Hz IPS with G-Sync from a low-end 1080p 60Hz TN panel. It's quite an upgrade. And notice that it did <laughs> help some especially when combined with a gamepad allowing me to sit further away from the screen. But I'm just wondering if an OLED may help with my issues or if some other panel technology, VA, even higher refresh rate, something. Are there certain features, Tim, that you think I should be looking for that would help minimize my motion sickness issues? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I can't speak from my experience as someone that doesn't suffer from uh, mm-hmm. simulation sickness, so I don't really have great insights here. But I think if things like reducing screen tearing and drop frames and the move to a high refresh rate panel have helped, then you'd probably just want to keep going down that path to something perhaps even higher refresh rate. You'll certainly reduce a lot of the the motion blur type effects that may be affecting you if that's a, a significant issue for you. So, you know, moving to 240 hertz, I would think would be an, a natural step there. I think with OLED, you sort of, you get speed in sort of a different way. It's not necessarily going to be the smoothness of frames, you know, no dropped frames or you know, less motion blur. But with OLED, you obviously get shorter response times. But then, Often, if the refresh rate isn't high enough, you start getting this sort of OLED judder that you might mm. see if you've had an OLED TV and you're playing like back like movies, for example, where in motion it kind of like does this judder motion, um, which may be an issue if you're playing games on hardware that you know can't run at 144 you know FPS. So I probably wouldn't say OLED is going to be the the best solution for you unless there's some ma- major high refresh rate OLED in the future. I think, yeah, if you keep going down the path to getting really low latency displays with lots of frames getting pumped into it and, and the smoothness there, then possibly that's going to help you. But again, you know, I'm not a medical expert, mm-hmm. so I don't know for sure what the, the cause of something like this is. So, but yeah, those are sort of my thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't, I think I suffer from very little motion sickness when it comes to anything having to do with a video game, which is weird because I get easily seasick and I hate being in the backseat of a car. So yeah, same. Yeah. And then my brother never gets seasick, but he got sick playing Mirror's Edge. And he said that he hated being in commu- computer labs in school because back then they had CRT monitors and he said they just fundamentally give him headaches. Like, so. Yeah. I think that would be the, the flicker related issue, mm-hmm. um, which again, maybe for this person, it, it is a flicker related issue, especially if you had an old monitor. A lot of them did not use flicker free backlights. Like, they would use PW, P 
PWM for their backlight technology, which is less of an issue these days. So potentially that's another area where you'd see some benefits. Obviously, CRTs are horrible for that, and so is running monitors with backlight strobing enabled. But lots of today's monitors have you know no PWM issues. Then again, there's some that run their PWM at like 10 kilohertz. So it can be... Yeah, it can be a bit of a process to find the one that works for you. But that's something I have heard a lot of people say with other monitors that, you know, they get something then there's a little bit of a backlight flicker and it makes them feel really sick using it. So just one of those things I guess you got to check the reviews for. Yeah, I guess this is a person that the highest refresh you can get, get a decent graphics card and turn settings down and get locked yep. adaptive sync is probably a godsend for you too And that it actually is putting out the frames when they're supposed to come out. Um, yep. Well, on the subject of high refresh, TMC Payton writes in, he says, Howdy, Tim and Tom. How does your desktop build recommendations change for guy buyers, not guyers, gaming exclusively on 240 hertz monitors? Both of you all do amazing work. Thank you. Jeez, I stumbled through that question, but I think you understood <laughs> what he was asking. Yeah, yeah. Um... Look, with this one, it's always one of those it depends questions, right? Because there are people that buy 240 hertz monitors and don't really use the 240 hertz. Like they play, they still play mostly their single player games, in which case, you know, your recommendations might be a mm. bit different. But if we assume that most people buying this sort of monitor are sort of your esports type gamers that are playing competitive games, they want the low latency and all of those things. Then, you know, I think you'd probably try and put more focus onto the CPU than the GPU. Previously, if you were buying, for example, you know, the fastest GPU you could possibly get and sort of neglecting the CPU, at 240 hertz, you're going to run into a, a lot of CPU-related issues a lot of the time, especially if you wanted to run, and this is something I was thinking about the other day, like, especially if you want to run single-player games at really high frame rates. Like, if you want to run Cyberpunk at a super high frame rate, it's really, really difficult. Mm. Even if you have a super powerful GPU and you turn all the settings down, you're pretty much going to be CPU limited quite quickly. So I think getting something that's as powerful of a CPU that you can is going to help a lot with those sorts of monitors. Um, but then again, you know, like I said, it sort of depends on what you're using that monitor for. Um, you can get a lot of benefits from 240 Hz for desktop use, even if you're not using that for gaming. So I guess it just depends. You know, one thing that I remember you and especially Steve on Hardware Unbox covered in a lot of detail, I, I want to say like half a year ago or so, was the CPU bottlenecking issue with high-end Ampere cards versus RDNA 2 cards. Um, yep. I recently uh, tested a 6700 XT again against the 3070, and I... Surprise, I found similar results to Steve at Hardware Unboxed, where if anything, Ampere's gained performance in 4K over the 6700 XT year over year. But then in 1080p, I found some pretty huge bottlenecking walls in CPU performance, even with an Alder Lake CPU, with the 3070 that I did not have with the 6700 XT. A couple of games had radically higher frame rates in 1080p, which really, even if it's been covered before, did surprise me when I saw it in person. Would you recommend, because I, I think if you're gaming at 240 hertz, like let's just say it, you're going to turn down settings. Like you, you are. Yeah. So like, would yeah. you recommend an RDNA 2 APU or APU or GPU more likely over an Ampere one if they're targeting that type of resolution? Because I'd say... You're just not playing with ray tracing on, so why do you even care about Ampere? Yeah, yeah, I'd say that's probably a fair 
fair comment. Obviously, it goes to the pricing of those GPUs, which at the moment is also in favor of the RDNA 2 cards. But I think, yeah, if you are playing at 1080p or even 1440p, obviously there's 240 or 1440p today as well, then, yeah, you probably would want a G- that sort of GPU, especially if you're playing DirectX 12 games, which I think was mm-hmm. most of the the bottlenecking issue between the two sort of the driver overhead discussion from last year. So, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what, what you'd want to go with. But then again, if you're sort of mixing and matching between all sorts of different types of gaming, then maybe you'd go NVIDIA. But I think, yeah, mostly if you were sort of lower resolution, low quality settings gaming, then, yeah, get your super fast CPU if all, at all possible. And then, yeah, probably get an RDNA 2 product. So Temet Nose writes in and he says, what's up, Tim and Tom? Tim, as someone who's familiar with calibration on displays and such, I'm sure you've encountered diehard picture quality enthusiasts such as myself. For instance, once I got into the high-end TV arena and began to learn about calibration techniques, I realized that I was in agreement with most of the experts who claim that anything that alters the native resolution degrades the overall experience. This is why whenever I set up a new panel, I always turn off all processing, such as upscaling, motion reduction, etc. The idea being that you can't simply get data from nothing, so any kind of upscaling is basically just filler data. My question is... What is your opinion on these ideas in relation to DLSS and FSR? The general way I see it is get the hardware to handle the resolution you're actually trying to target. Thanks to you, Tom, Steve, and of course, Dan, hopefully Tim, and all the hard work you do. Tim, you might you were my go-to when making my decision for purchasing the LG 27GL850-B two years ago, and it's been a fantastic panel so far. Hmm. Yeah, look... Uh... Quite a question here. Probably, probably a fair bit to discuss on this one. I, I'm mm. certainly a more of the diehard picture quality enthusiast when it comes to things like TVs and stuff. You know, I always also turn off all of the processing stuff, all the you know motion reduction and uh, you know the you know denoising. All that stuff gets turned off straight away for me. I think when it comes to DLSS and FSR, it kind of comes from a sort of a, a different standpoint. I think with the, the reason why you'd want to turn off all that processing stuff on your TV or monitor is when you're watching, like, say, a movie, for example, you want to get the experience that the person that made the film has intended. Like, there's someone employed making the film who does all the color work and all the mastering and everything to make it look exactly how the filmmaker wants that to look. So, for example, some films use film grain is sort of an artistic element and you wouldn't want to have your tv remove that because it's actually part of what the film is meant to be especially for things like horror films as an example so i think with with dlss and fsr it's kind of more acceptable to use i guess because it's a feature that the developer of the game is implementing it's not something that a user is sort of forcing on the game like anyone that's implementing those features you know, the developers choosing to do that, they're saying this is an acceptable way to to run the game. So I think from that perspective, it, it kind of is okay to use DLSS and FSR. I don't really see it the same as turning on the TV processing features where you're just sort of, you know, you're making the choice about how things should look. You kind of, yeah, it's sort of a developer sanctioned thing. I think with, with films, if there were, you know, different quality options to, to watch a film, then all of those different quality options would be acceptable. But obviously that's not the way that films work. So yeah, I think 
again, yeah, sort of if it comes down to upscaling on t- a TV versus upscaling in a game, I think, yeah, the game option is is more acceptable because the developers are sort of saying, yeah, go ahead, do that. Yeah, when I hear these questions, uh, two things come to mind. The first one is we're just so far away from perfect image quality still. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, it's not like audio in the 70s where you've got like an A-track and anything you could do to make the audio sound better, please. I mean, cassette tape sounded horrible. But over mm-hmm. time, I think a reason, and, and like when I look at different file sizes, because I have to edit and manage a lot of audio myself, and I look at like some of these WAV files that take up two, five gigabytes versus, you know, something that takes up, you know, 100, 200 megabytes. Or, I mean, sometimes the difference is, like 100 megabytes versus 5 or 10 for a song. And this isn't like an MP3 that's like a low bit rate. We're talking like 320, like really high bit rate MP3 is like a tenth the size of completely entirely lossless audio. I feel like we're we're maybe going to get there with graphics cards in five years, maybe. And that's when you'll start turning into this debate of, I really think a lot of PC gamers are going to sound a lot like what audio enthusiasts do now, where they're like, oh, I, I all lossless image quality. I've got my $5,000 system. I can tell the difference between this and DLSS 3.0. Trust me. And I think most people are going to be like, looks pretty close to photorealistic to me. But I just don't think we're there yet. So there's no game I played. And I've, you know, tested an overclocked A6000 3080 Ti. Like I've tested the highest end GPU levels of performance and there's always a little more performance I can get in any of the recent AAA games, no matter what. Yes, I can make do gaming in 4K on a 3070, but I, I, I can I would like to cut power usage in half even sometimes if it means the image quality is five percent worse. I don't really see the scenario right now where like even a 3090 Ti in 4K, you're not going to take that extra performance if you can get it. Yeah, and I, and I think as well, a lot of games these days, you know, it also makes sense for using DLSS and FSR from sometimes just getting better image quality. Mm-hmm. I mean, it depends on the game. Obviously, there are some games where they look worse and there's some where they look better, but a lot of developers, you know, they love their TAA. They love using that as the main anti-aliasing, and then they kind of botch it a lot of the times, either massive ghosting or significant amounts of, uh, like, softness blur whatever you want to call it so again those are sort of reasons that you you would use dlss and fsr just to improve the image quality from a standpoint that you're not getting those issues with the the sort of developer intended image but obviously in the future hopefully taa overall has improved to the point where you know you're not sort of seeing those those artifacts and i think things like running dlss just at the native resolution using it as an anti-aliasing feature and similar with fsr will become more popular as hardware becomes faster because then you're not you know you're not as concerned about running at 120 fps because you're already there you're just more concerned about getting even better image quality with those features so i think that's that's probably where things like that that would head but yeah i guess it depends obviously i agree there will be sort of those audiophile type gamers in the future where they're sort of you know, they're zooming in and, and looking very closely at the fine details and stuff and nitpicking things to death. But I, I think for most gamers, that's probably not how most people play. I think most people sort of just accept the the performance to image quality balance and, and go from there. 
Now, let's start talking about this then. One of the main reasons I wanted to have you on this week is you've tested FSR 2.0. I mean, wh- just what's your overall opinion of it? I, I th- it's just in death loop right now, but I know you tested it on a bunch of different graphics cards. Like, is FSR... I mean, I don't even, there, there's so much we could really discuss about this, honestly, because it's, how is FSR 1.0 actually at this point lived up to what you expected? And then is FSR 2.0 better than you expected? Like, you know, like a year ago, we were talking about the launch, I think, of FSR 1.0. Yeah, I think FSR 1.0, it, it was a good stepping stone to something better. Uh, I think I think a lot of what I said in the original piece that I did on FSR 1.0, however long it was ago, like a year ago, um, for in terms of playing games at 4K Ultra, you know, using the Ultra quality setting, is still true in a lot of instances. Like most games with FSR 1.0 Ultra quality at 4K look good, but you know, it really does depend on the game for sort of those lower quality settings. And I would not be wanting to use FSR 1.0 at like 1080p, for example. Like it looks quite bad uh, especially in games that have like lots and lots of grass as an example lots of hair like it just doesn't deal with that very well and i think you know even at that launch it was quite clear that dlss was better in a lot of those circumstances so i think you know when it comes to fsr 2.0 expectations uh, i always look at this in sort of a not so much you know what i think the company can do but sort of what they have to do Mm -hmm. like FSR 2.0 had to be a lot better than FSR 1.0 and it had to get reasonably close to DLSS. Otherwise, there's not even there's no point launching it. Like AMD would just be embarrassing themselves if they launched FSR 2.0 and it was worse than what they previously had and it was significantly behind DLSS because people would test it and be like, this sucks. Like, why, why didn't you do a better job of this? So, you know, if I sort of take the that angle and sort of think, well, most companies are trying to beat their competitors or match their competitors, then, yeah, the sort of expectations are at that level. So from that sense, I think FSR 2.0 was sort of at my expectation level. I think, if anything, the performance on lower-tier cards was perhaps a bit weaker than I was hoping for, things like how it runs on an RX 570, that sort of class of cards. You do get a performance uplift, but you know we're only talking like 10 to 15%, which isn't amazing. I would have liked to have seen more of a performance uplift, but then again, you're comparing it to basically nothing. Like There's no alternative, so getting any performance uplift is better than nothing. So I guess that's sort of where I sit on my expectations for the technology i think there's room for it to get better but i certainly think that it sort of was at the level that i was thinking it would be now why do you think the performance uplift wasn't that big for the uh lower end and really just older cards yeah i think it comes down to mostly just the the gpu resources that are available mm-hmm. um you know the algorithm itself takes longer to run on slower cards so you know, if you're processing a frame at let's say 4k and it takes you know say two milliseconds or something like a 6800 xt it might maybe taking five six milliseconds on a on a slower card and that really limits the performance that you're getting you know even if both cards you're, you're sort of running a baseline native performance of 60 fps having to take a two millisecond hit for processing frames versus six milliseconds is going to really limit the performance uplift that you get for the card that takes six milliseconds because it just yeah it just 
takes so much longer to do that processing. So I think that's the sort of main limitation on those slower cards. On top of that, you'd probably, again, we don't have the full mm -hmm. details on how FSR 2.0 works, but on those lower end cards as well, they don't necessarily have some of the features that the new architectures have. I think the RX 570 doesn't support native FP16, and I'd be shocked if FSR 2.0 didn't use that mm. processing pipeline, yeah. which, again, would be another factor for it being slower. But then we saw a similar situation on a you know, a 1650 Super, which I believe does support FP16 processing. So I think most of it is just down to slow cards are slow and can't <laughs> run these effects that that well. And you're sort of having to balance lowering the resolution, trying to improve the performance, having these fixed, you know, processing effects. You know, I, I think they sort of tried their best in terms of getting a performance uplift and even getting the, that uplift is still okay. But I'm sure there is a point where you won't see any performance gain, mm. like the, the the frame time shortening that you get from reducing the resolution is perfectly counteracted by the cost it takes to do the upscaling. So I'm sure on something like uh, you know, maybe an RX 560, something around there, you probably wouldn't see much of a benefit. Well, speaking of around RX 560 performance, you haven't tested FSR 2.0 on Rembrandt yet, have you? No, I do want to take more of a look into that, but I think we're getting 6,000 U-series laptops pretty soon. So I think if there's any mm. sort of APU product that it makes sense to test something like FSR 2.0, it would be that sort of tier of um, system. So yeah, I'll definitely check it out when that, that sort of thing is available, but I'm not expecting like major gains. I know people have talked about Steam Deck as well, sort of being mm. a a perfect candidate for FSR 2.0. But again, you know, the GPU on that is fairly weak. So... No, it's not. It's enthusiast gaming on the go. Come on. 720p, well, 30 hertz is yeah, now enthusiast. Obviously very impressive for a portable system, but FSR 2.0 does seem reasonably demanding. So I don't expect... Again, it depends. Like, I haven't tested how it goes 720p, for example. Mm. So, you know, maybe it's very lightweight there, but yeah, I wouldn't be expecting more than like 15% gains on low-end APU, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, Rembrandt's like, it's it's weaker than a 1650 Max-Q, which I, I usually say pegs it around a desktop 1050 Ti. I, I expect yep. they're going to market their next-gen APU pretty heavily with FSR 2.0, so I guess that is interesting to see where it goes. I mean, let me ask you this, though. How do you feel about... Uh, and I'm going to use this first question to kind of springboard into the next one. Like, I have to ask, do you expect any different results on other games with FSR 2.0? Because, I, I mean, technically people like to point out this is just one game. It could be a best-case scenario. Yeah, I don't, I don't know for sure. I think it really depends on how you look at, you know, how you expect it to be different in other games. If you're comparing it to sort of the native image quality, then the native image quality varies a lot between different games. Mm. Like some games don't use TAA at all. Some games use crappy TAA. And then you get sort of your cyberpunks that the native image quality is pretty good. So if you're doing those sort of native versus upscaled comparisons, I think we're going to see quite a range of different results for FSR 2.0. You might not get the sort of better than native uh, experience like you get in something like Deathloop. Uh, certainly, if it's included in Cyberpunk, I don't think we'll see better than native image quality because we don't really get that with DLSS either. But if you're sort of comparing like how FSR looks to how DLSS looks, I think it'll be mostly the same um, because mm -hmm. you're sort of using the same effect. Now, there may be some games where things like there's not 
too many grass effects or there's not too much, you know, some of those things that really trigger FSR 2.0's, you know, poor, poorer performance, things like really fine details. If those aren't in the game, then you're not going to notice that being an, an issue. But I think if you had two games that had similar levels of things like grass, like chain link fences, those sorts of things, then I would expect FSR 2 DLSS to look pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you think AMD needs to do then with FSR 2.0? Because to be honest, they just need to get this thing freaking adopted heavily before RDNA 3 launches, which it just sounds like such Groundhog's Day talking about FSR 1.0 and talking about how that needed to be adopted quickly. And I recently had on a game developer, Brian Heemsker, and talk to him about like what's going on with FSR. I think this was actually around when 2.0 was announced um, earlier this year. And we talked about how this is an uncomfortable truth. Yes, FSR 1 is getting adopted faster than DLSS was in that, I mean, DLSS just wasn't adopted for like the first year. But in the year FSR has been out, there's been more DLSS games added than FSR games. So NVIDIA is adding more games per month with DLSS than AMD is with FSR. And I think that's quite troubling this doesn't really matter if fsr 2.0 is as good as dlss if every game already has dlss 2.3 and you can still make that argument of like oh it's five percent better or something i mean do you expect this to get adopted faster or is there anything else besides adoption you think fsr needs at this point yeah, I'm not sure on adoption. I think they've got a challenge here because you know they ha- they kind of have to adopt faster in terms of getting the previous games, like the games that have already launched. They have to sort of go through and convince developers to mm-hmm. include this feature in those games. Those are sort of the games that you know make the backbone of the technology, whatever you want to say. Like like your Cyberpunk's Red Dead Redemption, those sort of big major titles that people go back to and talk about even today. But I think moving forward in sort of upcoming releases, it, it doesn't – like they have to sort of be in the games that DLSS is in. Mm-hmm. I don't think it matters too much if they are in more games than DLSS moving forward, so long as every game that has DLSS also has FSR. And to be honest, there's no reason that they shouldn't have one of the features. You know, there's FSR 2.0 support in major game engines, especially Unreal Engine, which like – Know, the majority of games are made in these days so if a developer is putting the work in to include dlss and they're not including fsr 2.0 you know they're just missing out on addressing potential customers of them like mm-hmm. there's still plenty of gamers out there that are playing on you know pascal era gpus where they can't use dlss so it makes sense to include that sort of feature for all games moving forward i don't think there's many excuses i mean developers will come and say you know, all these features take time and effort to integrate and, and you know, all that stuff. But I think if you're putting in the effort to in- integrate DLSS, you should be putting in the effort to integrate FSR 2.0 as well. Whether or not that happens mm-hmm. is obviously another question. But, you know, I, I, I'm fairly hopeful that we see some movement there. Obviously, there's going to be the sort of the NVIDIA-sponsored games yeah. that probably only use DLSS and then the AMD-sponsored games, like sort of maybe a Far Cry of the future sort of thing that would only use FSR 2.0. But hopefully we see the majority of titles integrating both. And I think there'll be a fair bit of you know community push towards that, sort of people questioning, you know, why does this game have DLSS but not FSR 2.0? Whereas I sort of think with FSR 1.0, you, because the technology was so 
different and mm. potentially not to the same quality level, especially for people playing like 1080p, 1440p, that you could sort of, I guess, justify a developer not wanting to bother with it if they assessed it and were like, wow, this doesn't look very good for whatever reason, then they might just dismiss it. But I don't think that applies with FSR 2.0. I think the quality is there. So I think developers testing it would find that as well. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens on the adoption front, but I think that probably is their main, the main thing that they really need to nail. Um, it, it's sort of, you know, obviously there's the quality side of things where they could still work on and improve it and, and all of that. But I just expect that to happen anyway because, you know, NVIDIA's been doing that with DLSS. AMD should be doing that with FSR 2.0. But if they want to take, you know, the, the lead or the crown or whatever, then, yeah, it's kind of convincing developers to integrate it, making it easy for developers to integrate, you know, providing the support. NVIDIA's very good at doing that uh, in terms of, you know, going to developers, trying to get the, the their features integrated into games. AMD needs to, yeah, pretty significantly step up their game mm. there and not just not just rely on their GPU open website and having a plug-in for, for Unreal Engine. They need to be, you know, sitting down with people and making sure that their features are there. Yeah, uh, Rafa Zaya writes in and basically asks us too if there was like any benefit to FSR 1.0 being open source in practice. And this is actually interesting because... Bringing him up again, that Brian Heemskirk episode of Broken Silicon, he said a lot of developers he works with and talked to, including himself to a certain degree, it was like, yeah, great, AMD. It's easy to add FSR 1.0. Ooh, we can do it supposedly in a day of coding. But that's not how we make games. If we add it in a day of coding, we're still worried we're going to add bugs. And so ultimately, the QA part of it, the testing, making sure there isn't artifacts when we add it, that's most of the work it's not actually adding it and i do think at a certain point uh fsr 1.0 wasn't adopted as much actually because the fact that nvidia was willing to pay to put dlss in the code mid-development meant that they were always working towards including it and adding that devs don't want to add anything last minute the time that they're yeah. polishing it doesn't matter how easy it is like what's we, it works just please don't touch it is how they think about it and so I think that whether AMD likes it or not, they're going to have to just pay to put it in the game, man. <laughs> like, you're going to have to start fighting fire with fire here when it comes to competing with NVIDIA. Yeah, I think so. I think the open source stuff benefits, you know, not that much, probably on a minor end. You know, developers can sort of see how the algorithm works so they can optimize the inputs to the algorithm. I'd heard that for... A few people saying, you know, DLSS can be difficult in some situations mm -hmm. to get it running perfectly because they don't, the developer doesn't know exactly how it works, so they can't make the the inputs, you know, at, as good as they possibly could be, which is not going to be as much of an issue for FSR 2.0. But yeah, like for, for developers, you know, how how often have we even seen DLSS 1.0 games get upgraded to DLSS 2.0? <laughs> like it's DLSS 2.0, right? Yeah, it was like so much better than DLSS 1.0 and yet developers still didn't like the majority of them didn't upgrade to 2.0. I know some of them have now, but we're talking like years later or after some major, you know, maybe it's like a DLC pack or a new edition of the game. That's what it takes to get those features integrated. So I agree with you. I think with, with FSR 2.0, it's really about integrating it early in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. I think having like an Unreal Engine 5 or 4 plugin is going to help a fair bit for that because developers, when they begin their project, can enable 
the, you know, the DLSS plugin, FSR 2.0 plugin and go about it from there. But getting it in games that are already on the market is going to take money, basically. Like going back and saying, hey, CD Projekt, um, Cyberpunk, hey, well, we, we want FSR 2.0 in, in, your, in your game. Here's the, the development resources or however mm-hmm. these companies. Because, you know, AMD and NVIDIA have always denied, at least to me, paying for these features but they always you know say we provide the development resources or whatever the the alternate which is effectively you know money in some form or another um so i think they're going to have to do stuff like that but yeah like i said moving forward i think with future games hopefully it's easy enough for the developers to integrate that they can get that process rolling early and also that unlike fsr 1.0 there hopefully will be fewer artifacts and issues that may be off-putting to developers like even if early in development they integrate fsr 1.0 they might have a game that is you know really really sharp and has lots of aliasing normally in which case fsr 1.0 just amplifies that and a developer may see that and be like oh i'm not super keen on how that looks whereas i think fsr 2.0 is going to be much more versatile for those developers and it's going to produce results that developers will be more happy with and more happy to integrate into their game without perhaps doing as much of the quality control side of things. Obviously they're going to have to make sure the the feature works, but beyond that, you know, I think the image quality is going to impress more developers, which is going to help with these sorts of features. You know, you have to, when you're trying to convince someone to use something that you've made, you actually have to make it good. It's sort of like <laughs> the, fir- the first step is making it good. And I think FSR 2.0 does qualify as being good for, for that sort of purpose. Well, yeah, and it actually is very good now very close to DLSS. Today's video is brought to you by CDKeyOffer.com. Now that I've got my compact Alder Lake benchmarking system done, I'm free to test a lot of graphics cards in both Windows 10 and Windows 11. And I always get those keys from CDKeyOffer.com. That's because it's a reliable long-term sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead that gets you reasonable prices on legitimate keys for these types of products but it's really not all that they offer they also can give you keys for microsoft office uh keys for playstation codes and even some of the latest pc releases like elden ring and they even carry gaming peripherals in chairs now whatever you need cd key offer probably has you covered and they're always running sales but make sure you use the best code possible and that's the ones provided for the moore's law is dead fans moore's law is dead fans get the biggest discount and if you Go to the link on screen or in the description. You can use code BROKENSILICON to get 25% off Microsoft products and DieString to get 3% off everything else on the website. Using these codes really does help Moore's Law is Dead, and it helps you play reasonable prices for games that you want in keys that, frankly, you just have to use half of the time. So, again, use the link in the description. Use Broken Silicon. Use DieString depending on the products you're getting, and pay reasonable prices for keys today at CDKeyOffer.com. Amiable Chief writes in and he says, Hi guys, I don't think I've seen anyone frame it quite like this, but in light of FSR 2.0, do you feel like DLSS is starting to look a little Rube Goldberg-esque? Achieving DLSS-like quality without AI or running out of the box on the competition seems like the more elegant engineering solution, and at least in my opinion, makes NVIDIA look a little silly. And that is to say nothing of the power draw. AMD seems to have iterated more rapidly with FSR 2.0, so 
Do you agree with this idea? And finally, do you see AMD blowing it out of the water with hardware-accelerated FSR, he calls it 2.5, they'd probably call it 3.0, and RDNA 4? Yeah, i got no idea whether the FSR 3.0 being accelerated thing is ever going to happen, so don't know about that. I, I think for the, you know, DLSS taking the AI approach versus FSR doing the, what do they call it, handcrafted algorithm or whatever mm-hmm. sort of marketing they want to use for it, the normal algorithm way of doing things, you know, you can sort of say that, yes, doing AI-based stuff without AI is potentially more impressive, but then you also look at how long it took them to actually do it. Mm-hmm. So NVIDIA had DLSS 2.0 ready, what, in like the start of 2020, so at least two years ago now, and AMD took two years to develop their handcrafted. I don't know if they were working on it for two years. I've got no idea. They could mm-hmm. have only been working on it for six months, for all I know. They should have been working on it for years at the very least as soon as DLSS 2.0 was announced. But, you know, if because they're late later to develop this, you sort of, I guess there's, there's ways of going about it. Often the reason for using AI is to simplify the development of very complicated algorithms. Like if you can do it via AI, yes, it may be more complex in terms of what the AI produces for you. It may run worse or whatever, not that DLSS does. But, you know, you're sort of simplifying, trying to figure out the exact inputs mm-hmm. and the, the exact tweaks that make the best image quality. Whereas if you're doing it the non-AI way, you have to pay someone to spend hours upon hours going through and optimizing all the little things Sorry, that may go wrong across a, a wide variety of games. So, you know, I, I think it's impressive that FSR 2.0 gets as close to DLSS as it does without AI. But DLSS, at the end of the day, also, in my opinion, does look better and it uses AI. And I think the benefits for things like playing at 1080p using the lower quality mm. settings, it is better with the AI approach. So, you know, how much can you criticize someone using AI for a technology when they have actually made sort of the better technology at the end of the day? But then again, you know, you're sort of talking about better from one perspective because better may mean supported across a wide range of hardware, which DLSS isn't capable of doing. So I think with these discussions, there's there's just far too many angles to sort of say, you know, one company took the best approach or the other company took the best approach. I think that, yeah, FSR 2.0 being the more supported option, that's definitely a great way of going about it. But then also creating the way that looks the best is a great way of going about it, even if it creates, you know, more hardware compatibility issues. So I I don't know really where I sit on that. Uh, I certainly think that, you know, FSR 2.0 has more room to be optimized. I think that this isn't the end of where the hand-tuned algorithm could be. I think it could definitely get closer to DLSS over time. And DLSS is sort of perhaps more at the end of the, the sort of level of quality that it can achieve. But yeah, I guess it just depends how much effort they want to put into achieving that. I, I certainly, you know, there's no reason why the AI algorithm can't be replicated via hand-tuned algorithms. It's just a matter of finding that algorithm by hand that works as well, um, which may take quite a lot of time. Yeah, I mean... I would say it's too early to say DLSS is Rube Goldberg-esque, but maybe an FSR 3.0 comes out that beats it and then does work on all hardware. And we're like, yeah, it's starting to look kind of silly at this point, Jensen, especially when you look at G-Sync, where it 
That did look Rube Goldberg-esque to me. It's like, look at this chip that adds power usage and latency and cost to the monitor and thickness. Yeah, and I think with those things, it's it's about how the company that makes the the Rube Goldberg-esque, you know, product, however you want to, you know, label that. I think it's about how they go about making the final product because obviously the gold standard would be DLSS that works on everything. Right, like that's what people want. They want the compatibility and the image quality in the one thing. So I think you know if FSR starts getting closer and closer to DLSS, and DLSS, you know, Nvidia is like, hey, we're not going to put any effort in whatsoever to make this work on anything else. Like we just don't care. We're not going to put in the effort. Then that's when they start looking more down that path of the Rube Goldberg S because they're not putting in the development effort to try and fix one of the issues of DLSS, which is the compatibility. But I think, you know, if they come up with a technology that like DLSS that is more compatible, then they sort of get out of that mentality, I guess, where, you know, they sort of go from, hey, this is the this is the way we could do it to begin with. Mm. And we, we we focused on image quality and we got the image quality that we were after. And then over time, we put in the development effort to make it more compatible, to run on more things, to do that broad support. Will NVIDIA do that? Well, they've told me that they're not doing that. So, you know, I, I doubt that they will. But I think that's the sort of path out of looking like that whether or not nvidia actually cares about looking like having made this extremely complicated ai system that only runs on their hardware i don't think they care all that much they care about having the best feature and that's sort of the limit of where they cut it off they don't care about it running on their competitors so yeah i i think you know i think there may be a point where dlss needs to Mm. go to a wide wide support to you know become you know the the best feature on the market if FSR 2.0 can get there with quality or FSR 3.0. But, you know, it, it just depends on how they approach the development. Yeah, I mean, I think they don't need to do that until AMD forces their hand in FSR 2.0 yeah, in one game. So I yeah. think, and, and, you know, it's actually funny um, to answer part of Amiel Chief's question, which is, I've always, I never actually confirmed it was going to happen, but I did suspect AMD may someday try to accelerate FSR if it gets widespread adoption. But they need to get the adoption first before they try to have some advantage, because if they were to take FSR 2.0 right now and say it only runs on RDNA 3 or an RDNA 2 and RDNA 3 gets a boost, developers are going to be like, yeah, well, whatever, NVIDIA has 80% market share, so maybe we'll support it if you pay us to. Um, I've actually heard that AMD was... There might be some slight amount of silicon in RDNA 3 or f- like that was going to accelerate it, but they found it was totally unnecessary to get basically maximum performance. And if they don't have adoption, what is the point on forcing some unique feature? And they need that first. So I don't actually expect any sort of accelerated... I'm almost 100% sure you're not going to see that in RDNA 3 at this point, actually. I don't expect to see it until they get widespread adoption. And then that's when they can try to pull in NVIDIA. But I don't think there's really... There's not going to be any developer buying if they do it too soon. Yeah, and I think with these features as well, you like we don't know what's going to happen with things like you know game engine support for similar mm. features. Like there may be a future where you know we hit another Unreal Engine version and their version of TSR st- suddenly is extremely excellent. Mm. I know it's supposed to be very good. I haven't done a ton of investigating into into that because of the, obviously the lack of Unreal Engine five games. You can actually play the night tech demos, but. 
know, I think with, you know, there's possibly the game engine solve that problem for these companies so that they don't necessarily need to bother with these, you know, hardware accelerating effects and stuff. You're sort of running a very fine line with the hardware acceleration thing where if, you, if you're spending money to develop a hardware feature and you're allocating die space to do that, you have to make sure the feature is actually, like, used widely and isn't mm-hmm. going to die away and just make that silicon investment, like, pointless. I think A&B in the past has done stuff back, you know, like True Audio yeah. where they sort of they have this hardware accelerated audio features and things and they're like, hey developers please use this and then like no one did so that that kind of effort is wasted um but yeah i think by the time we get to the future where fsr is develop you know integrated into enough games that it warrants hardware acceleration there's probably going to be too many upscaling methods mm. available that you wouldn't really bother with trying to accelerate your thing because there'd be just games using one feature, another game using a different feature, a third game using you know a third different feature, and it just yeah it just wouldn't make sense at that point. Yeah, it'd almost be better actually if what you did in some future RDNA is some sort of like neural engine esque accelerated thing where it's like yeah we can use this neural engine to accelerate not just FSR, but all these other upscaling techniques in the back end. And it can be used for other stuff that's not gaming. But if if they had an IP block for just one use, yeah, that'd be a huge waste of silicon if it's just one use. Especially, I mean, when you consider like even just 10 millimeters squared, 20, 30 millimeters squared, well, we could add a few more compute units. We could add... 32, you know, another 10, 20 megabytes of infinity cache. We could add another 32 bits to the bus width. There's always something else you can, or you can make the die 10% smaller and increase yields by a few percent, make more money. Like there's always something else you can do with that space. Yeah. And I think if they were going to go down the path of acceleration, they'd want to, they'd want their own first party feature that is really compelling. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think back, back to the true audio example, true audio wasn't that compelling. Like there wasn't, you know, they sort of tried to make it out that it was doing all these cool audio things, but, you know, the difference was, you know, negligible to, to very minor. I think if they were going to do the acceleration path, they would have to develop their own, you know, DLSS-like feature. Of course, I, and I don't mean that from another upscaling technology. I mean a feature that is compelling enough for mm. gamers that, like DLSS is. And I think one angle that they could go down, which you know, it probably isn't going to be relevant for at least, you know, maybe five years or something like that is, you know, once we start getting 500 hertz to 1,000 hertz displays that are really, really high refresh rate, the only feasible path to using those displays is, you know, AI frame interpolation where mm. you, you're, you're, you're technically running the game at like 200 FPS, but then you use AI magic to double that to, to 400 FPS or you quadruple that to, you know, 800 FPS to run on your 1,000 hertz display. I think... I would be shocked if NVIDIA isn't actively developing features like that. Yeah. So I think because 1000 Hertz displays are on the development pipeline for panel manufacturers. So I think, you know, the company that comes out and can do that sort of acceleration things, some, something like that sort of feature where gamers can immediately see the benefit of using it, where, you know, it theoretically would run in many different games. It would immediately give you, you know, sort of a doubling of your frame rate it's kind of like a fake doubling motion smoothing type effect mm-hmm. with tvs but obviously far superior because you're doing it with ai i think those sorts of things 
yeah, that's where you can justify the hardware costs and the hardware acceleration stuff. But if you're not, if you're just producing a feature that you need game developers to support and you, you, you've got 20% market share and your feature is exclusive and you're initially like what point some fraction of a decimal of the market is going to have your new GPU that supports that feature. It's going to be very difficult. What do you mean? Um, True may- audio's in thief, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah. So I think that, I think that struggle with that, you know, even with DLSS, it took, you know, how many years before it, developers started integrating that? Because, you know, Turing, obviously when it launches, no one has those cards. So no developers would, would bother unless there's some other incentive. So, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you say that too, because I mean, 4K, 240 hertz is on the horizon. You can technically, they're somewhat experimental, but you can get 480 hertz monitors right now if you want to from a company that yep. like makes a chip that does it. So, yeah, if, and I know the way AMD's going with these, like, insane like mega just ponte vecchio looking chiplet gpus a few years from now i don't know if nvidia's really caught up in the chiplet game we'll have to see but that is a killer feature that if they were like hey double frame rate now effectively all of our cards just doubled frame rate because of this tensor accelerated ip block we added that is the logical conclusion i could see them going to with giant monolithic dies to combat these like complex chiplet things AMD has. It is, and I do find it surprising these companies haven't done something with that when it comes to anti-aliasing or some dedicated IP block yet. It really does actually still surprise me that they really haven't tried that. Yeah, I think uh, at least for the sort of frame interpolation thing, you know, we, we don't really have the displays yet, at least in my opinion, that would justify that because Not you really do want to, yeah. yeah, you do want a very short time between frames to sort of, you don't want to having to do like 30 FPS to 60 FPS interpolation because then you get the TV soap opera effect, which, which, you know, the quality of that can be a bit hit or miss. But if you're you're talking about, you know, having a one millisecond or two millisecond sort of time that you have to sort of work with, then it, that would really benefit those sorts of features. So, so I think, you know, when it comes to accelerating something like that, I guess the, you know, you need the other parts of the ecosystem to improve in terms of displays and, can you run a thousand hertz at, on a current display connector? Like maybe at 1080p, but certainly not at higher, you know, uh, resolutions without sort some sort of you know compression technology. So you know, I think that's why we wouldn't see that. But yeah, I think it is maybe a little bit strange why we haven't seen accelerated anti-aliasing mm-hmm. as a feature. But I guess it, 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 you know, I'm not a hardware developer, so I, I don't know, maybe that's not really possible to be done or would require some ridiculous buy-in from game developers to all use some specific AI, anti-aliasing technique. I don't know, but I think there's probably, you know, clearly the way hardware is being developed further into the future are, are more and more hardware-accelerated features. Media encoding was sort of the first main step mm-hmm. towards that, and we're seeing more sort of AI features. And in the future, sure, I'm sure there'll be more and more of those blocks included in these yeah pieces of hardware. Yeah, I mean, I guess another detractor is also like competition. Like Nvidia has been in charge for a while. It's AMD is certainly resurgent now, but it's like, hey, look, half of the cards sold are going to be used for compute in data center and mining. So yeah. we don't really need that MSAA block if we're, yeah, you know, if yeah. it's used for that and AMD's behind us anyways. But let me switch gears to a different company here. Brett Summers writes in, he says, hello, Tom and Tim. Now that we have FSR 1.0, 2.0, RSR, DLSS 2.X and NIS, 
Where do you expect Intel's XC Super sampling to fit into this spectrum? It seems it's coming out May 20th. And by the wording, it seems like it's based on SM6.4 instead of DP4A or XMX. Do you guys think we'll see quicker adoption of this compared to, say, FSR? Or do you think FSR 2.0 is good enough and is open to all vendors and backed by a company that has decades of experience in the GPU space, so it's it'll be better backed than what Intel's bringing? Uh, I linked a link below for you guys in case you're wondering where I got the May 20th. Yeah, so I guess that's a rumor. I don't know if you can confirm if you'll be testing XC Super sampling, and that's a, that'd be a few days from now, actually. Uh, no, I won't be. <laughs> uh, the main reason for that is that, yeah, I, I've saw the May 20th date as, as much as everyone else did or when everyone else did. Um, so, yeah, Intel, I guess, if they are putting it out in that game on May 20th, they certainly haven't told me, which, you know, probably if they are they probably should be but again with these technologies some companies decide not to pre-brief or provide early access for those things so that yeah, that that may happen i don't know the last time intel spoke to me about xcss they said it would only work on their own gpus to begin with so mm. i don't know whether that's going to be the case with this game it wouldn't make a lot of sense to launch i mean i guess what there's now a few arc laptops out there what do you mean it launched last quarter tim (laughs) i this that what like one laptop maybe (laughs) one in korea yeah (laughs) something like that which i maybe that's why they're not talking about it too much but i think if you're coming out with a feature like xcss you should be making you know a big song and dance about it it's a a major feature that's going to be there for for your GPU. So yeah, I, I don't know what's going to be happening with this game on May 20th. If there is XCSS in it, then I'll, I'll check it out. But no, no, I'm not testing it to begin with, uh, at, at least at the moment. So I don't know. Maybe other people are. Maybe I've just been shafted here. Who knows? Well, well I'll jump in and say this. Um, I've seen from some distributors, I won't, of course, say which businesses, but like in their systems, I've seen screenshots of them being prepared for sale. So I, I will actually say that within two weeks of this, podcast coming out there should be some low-end arc laptops you can actually buy at like amazon doing micro center and best buy about under two weeks from now i'm guessing you haven't been told you're going to be sent any anytime soon or something or if you can say or not so if they are they're certainly not doing a good job partnering for the testing (laughs) then even if i know they are coming in two weeks how many we'll see yeah, I mean, there's a laptop that's already out there with it. So, I mean, if they wanted to get the, if Intel wanted to have people testing it, then I'm sure that they would be doing something around that. But yeah, I, I don't know what they're doing with that. Maybe, you know, it's kind kind of an odd launch. The whole Arc thing. It's going. It is very, definitely an odd launch. Very strangely. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I yeah, I, I've got no idea what's going to be happening with XCSS with how the game, it fits in or... whether it's in the game, how it fits in. Um, you know, how, you know, whether it actually will work on other GPUs at launch or not. Very, very mixed messaging. I think with Intel features in games, they haven't really had much success in the past. There's been other features that they've developed previously sort of in the, you know, NVIDIA Gameworks type mold where they've come out with their own, you know, whatever graphical effects for, for games. And it, you know, it gets integrated in like three games in total. I know they're saying for XCSS they're going to get it in, more than three games. I think the last they announced these things, it was like they showed off, what, like a dozen games or something around there. But that's always been their issue. It, it doesn't really matter what the, you know, the, how the technology looks like and how, how it performs and all that. It's about, you know, convincing developers to use a feature from a company that doesn't really have the history in GPUs and in gaming GPUs in particular. So, 
yeah, I don't know how what it's going to look like or how it's going to perform. I've got no idea. Hopefully, it's going to be good. They they claim it's you know AI enhanced and all that sort of thing. Um, so we'll see how that goes from a you know quality performance standpoint. Fingers crossed, it works well across a wide variety of GPUs. But ultimately, yeah, we'll have to you know it all comes down to how Intel can implement that in the games that they want to get it into and getting into a wide variety of games because like i said they kind of don't have the history of being able to do that so we'll see. so yeah if it launches in a week or something you have no idea what to expect out of it but fingers no, crossed no idea yeah haven't like i said haven't started testing it haven't been briefed on it or anything so um if they're doing something, we'll just be getting it at the same time as everyone else and we'll go about doing our analysis as always. But, yeah, like with these features, hopefully it's available for everyone to test out. You know, something like FSR 2.0, it's great that people can just go and use it and come to their own conclusions about what it's like. Um, obviously, the videos do help a little bit. You can see the comparisons that are maybe a bit trickier for people to do. But at the end of the day, it's like you can decide for yourself. Like there's no barrier to entry for running FSR 2.0 and hopefully there's no barrier for entry for running XCSS either. So you can just compare it yourself and go about it like that. Well, so I guess that we're on this subject of Intel. Just, <laughs> I, we talked about Alchemist like half a year ago and I, I think we would have both, I don't know if I, I think we would have bet money that it would be much easier to get in the U.S. by now. Like we had, if we, if you were to tell me, hey, guess what? Uh, I would, I would probably believed my future self. But if he said, hey, guess what? I know you think it's coming out in three months, or that Intel literally told investors it was. Uh, guess what? It's gonna be May, and it's still not gonna be really out. Like, what do you, what do you think about Alchemist right now? What do you? It's a very open-ended question. What do you expect at this point? Oh, don't know. Don't know what I would expect. I think my expectations are probably getting lower and lower as each month mm -hmm. goes on. I think the the launch has been a bit of a fail so far. Um, I think it's sort of, you know, they they're in this issue where it doesn't look like they're competing with high end GPUs of stack. Like they're not going to be coming out and producing an RTX thirty ninety type GPU as far no. as <laughs> most people. You know, the uh, let's let's trust the rumors for a moment and say that that that's not going to happen. It seems very unlikely that that's going to happen. And the the longer they take to get it mm -hmm. out, the closer they're running into next generation products. And if they're launching, you know, a thirty seventy type GPU up against next generation products, that's yeah, they, they they just would have completely missed the the boat there. The time that Alchemist needed to have launched was when GPU supplies were at their absolute worst. So mm. January would have been great. Yeah, ideally, even before January, like holiday of last year, would have been the sort of the optimal time to launch that. They would have had the best opportunity of getting these cards into the hands of gamers and really kicking off their ecosystem with a bang because people were scrambling to find GPUs. If you could find Intel GPU, people would be much more willing to take take the punt on a, a first-generation product from, from Intel. Whereas now we're sort of sitting around and we're waiting, we're sort of twiddling our thumbs. You know, they say it was coming out in Q1. Obviously that didn't, maybe it technically no, no, happened. They but... on shelves in Q1. And I remember <laughs> in a video, I circled that and I said, on shelves Q1, comma, first desk generation with desktops. And I'm like, they didn't say, I. everyone called me pedantic. I'm like, they said on shelves, I guarantee they're using this to hide that it's not really launching then. 
Yeah, well, whatever they were saying was obviously highly misleading. Oh, yeah. In, in some way. Like, you know, obviously for, you know, these companies, they always try and weasel out with technicalities by doing paper launches on like the very last day of the quarter so they can say it technically launched. But whatever the case is, you can't actually buy them right now. Mm-hmm. And when they were, you know, claiming that it should have been earlier this year, yeah, that that's just, you know, it doesn't give you great confidence in a product if they keep trying to weasel out of, the timeframes that they've been talking about because it, it, it seemed even if it, they were always planning on actually mm-hmm. getting it out in July or June or whenever the, the time will end up being, you know, it, it feels like a delay. If they say it's Q1 yeah. and then you can actually buy it in, you know, four, three or four months later, it feels like a delay and delays usually, at least for hardware, don't give you heaps of confidence. Certainly with, you know, most AMD and NVIDIA GPUs, they come out, they say when the product's going to be available and yeah, maybe they say, you know, this is going to be Q3 and they launch it, you know, the very last day of September, but they, you know, they they tend to be more accurate with those things. So yeah, I sort of, over time, I think my expectations for the product have gotten less and less. And yeah, if they're launching like, even like two, three months before next generation products, it's just, yeah, they just will have completely missed a trick there. Like it's just not going to go well for them. I wouldn't have thought. I I truly think that's what's going to happen at this point, to be honest. I think we already, I guess we kind of have low-end laptop Alchemist out now. At first, it had like 50% GPU usage in a lot of testing. Now they've updated it. I saw it some websites in the newest buy, um, newest graphics driver update, like massively increased performance. Um, so it seems like it is indeed the drivers. They're trying to fix the drivers to fully take advantage of their cards, and they don't see a point in... Because as far as I'm aware, they're done making the cards. Like, they're just sitting the dies in a warehouse somewhere waiting to be packaged and sold. So th- they don't see a point in selling the highest-end model if it's going to be at, like, 70% GPU usage. And I really think we're going to see... You know, a trickling of laptop products uh, this month and then in June, low-end and mid-range, you know, what they'll call mid-range at this point will almost be low-end because Lovelace is almost out desktop. And I th- I think there's going to be like a limited edition, almost like Vega Frontier-esque, which is funny because Roger Kadori's in charge again, a like Vega Frontier-esque launch of the highest-end model. I-, I honestly think like July and it'll be like there's two weeks where it's even really sold and then they kind of walk away until Battle Mage. That's, and I think they're going to launch it like a month or weeks before Lovelace. I honestly do at this point. Yeah, I mean, I've got, you, you'd have a better idea on the timelines than I would on those sorts of things. But I think, yeah, I mean, they're kind of stuck in this place where if you're producing a GPU series, like a new GPU series, you need it to be impressive off the bat. Otherwise, people you know, in the gaming market will create memes and laugh at, like, laugh at them basically. So, and and we've seen that in the past with AMD launches where Mm. they've, you know, something like, you know, the 5700 XT series where that was their top end card and NVIDIA had a, you know, their flagship GPU that was significantly faster. And first of all, you don't really want that situation because then it, it makes it seem like the best you can do is significantly inferior to your competition. So you get memes and you get laughed at based on that. But then, you know, even if they do come out with a product that is slower and then they could, if they're having all these issues with drivers, it's just another compounding mm-hmm. problem for them where they, they don't have the, the hardware that competes at the high end and people that do actually buy their mid range or more affordable cards and they could price it low. Like they could make it. I think like they're a 5, considering selling XT. some of them at cost because they're only making 4 million and they know that it's 
It's more important yeah. to not be overpriced and they've taken too long. So I think they might sell the low end one for one fifty, the thirty sixty competitor for three hundred to three fifty. And uh I mean, let's just be honest, I, I think they should sell the thirty seventy competitor for four hundred at most if it launches right before Lovelace. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it has to be significantly cheaper. Like there's there today when it's very easy to buy a GPU, um, you know, and obviously, you know, we're not getting MSRP prices for every product just yet, but it's extremely easy. Like there's mm-hmm. no barrier for supply these days. You can buy anything that you want. And I think if people have the choice, they're not going to choose to buy a first generation Intel GPU until people are telling you whether it's, you know, a good quality product or not, whether it works across a wide variety of games. So yeah, they're stuck in this really difficult position where, you know, if drivers are an issue, they can't just launch a product with terrible drivers because, you know, even today people talk about AMD versus NVIDIA drivers mm. and, you know, how good are AMD drivers? That's That's been an issue for, for quite a while. Even if, you know, in my opinion, the AMD drivers are perfectly acceptable, like there's not no major issues for most current-gen products with AMD drivers. Obviously, it has been an issue in the past for some products. They don't want to have that reputation. Like, it's a terrible reputation to start off with. People talk about drivers all the time. They talk about compatibility. They talk about stability and features and all Mm. that. And you can't just come out and launch a a slower card for, you know, even if it's sold at cost, that just doesn't work in games and has issues. You know, people aren't going to put up with that. They're not going to buy the future products that may actually be good. Mm-hmm. Like the next generation of GPUs from Intel, who knows? They might actually be really good. But people aren't going to buy them if the first gen has set such a terrible um, standard. And again, you know, the longer they try and fix the drivers, the more of the issue mm-hmm. on the their flagship product being slower than the competition, that becomes an issue. So they're kind of stuck in this really difficult balancing act. And ultimately, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for them to come out with a product that, you know, satisfies people. Because, um, yeah, if, they, if they're doing what you say and they launch a month or weeks before NVIDIA's next-gen GPUs, you know, even if it looks acceptable at the time that it launches and reviews come out, you know, just think of the memes that would come out like two weeks later. Like it just wouldn't be, you know, Intel wouldn't want to cop that, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, it, I guess I need to be clear. I mean, like a month or weeks before Lovelace is, I put in quotes, launched. It's not really going to be launched for about a yeah, month yeah, after of course. it's launched. Yeah, but. like the, annou- the announcement, right. But even if even if they come out and announce an RTX 4090, whatever, that's massively faster, people mm. will start making the comparisons to Intel and AMD's best cards. And if Intel's best card suddenly starts looking like a mainstream GPU, well, yeah. I, I mean, I think Lovelace is going to double performance. So if they, <laughs> the forty ninety is double a thirty ninety, and then we look at where everything else should be in that lineup, that means you're looking yep. at a forty seventy as strong or stronger than a thirty ninety. You're looking at a forty sixty about as strong probably as a thirty eighty or thirty seventy Ti, and then you're looking at a forty fifty Ti a maybe about as strong as a 3070 so i don't even know what they how low they can price these cards if they don't sell them at cost i, I honestly just think yeah if the best you can hope for out of intel at this point is just the drivers are rock solid and then there's just 150 300 or like 250 and 350 they're only making four million of them just don't leave a bad taste in everyone's mouth and no one will hate you but i think that's the best yeah. case scenario and, and uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with launching entry-level GPUs. Like people mm-hmm. need entry-level GPUs. Even today, the options below $250 are pretty weak. You know, 6500 XT is not a great product. But obviously, it's in the sad past, when AMD's it's competitor is like a 1650. <laughs> 
Uh, well, yeah, I think. But in the past, obviously, AMD's had a lot of success with mm. cards. Well, I don't know. Should I should I say a lot of success? Their sales still weren't amazing, <laughs> but you know, an RX five seventy, five eighty, four eighty. Those cards were really good for people buying entry level, mainstream level GPUs. And if Intel can come out and satisfy gamers looking for something for 150 to 200 dollars for those people it doesn't really matter if Mm. their high-end gpu isn't anywhere near the performance of their competitors it really just comes down to the price and that's one way that they could be successful but unfortunately in these these eras where people like to you know take their team to war against the (laughs) other teams you know they, they try and you know, fanboys of companies and stuff, which we've always talked about as being not a great situation. You know, you should always be open to all the the different vendors that are out there. But obviously these days there are people that, you know, go into battle for these things, go into battle for companies for whatever reason and not having your high-end product, you know, hurts that perception, hurts perception and hurts mindshare. So, yeah, I guess that's where I'm sort of sitting on on Intel GPUs at the moment. I'm just hoping that at the very least, like you've been talking about, like we've been talking about, that they do have some, you know, sub $300 GPU that's good, you know, competitive and is worth buying and gives an option to those gamers that, you know, let's be honest, people buying GPUs below $300 in the last five years have been absolutely shafted. Like mm-hmm. they've had the consistently terrible launches, minimum price-to-performance improvements. So anything that helps out those people is going to be potentially good. But we'll just have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah, it's funny to see, like, at a recent... I say recent, at some point. It could have been a year ago by now. Time just flies. NVIDIA did a presentation where they're like, Ampere is so popular that people are upgrading to higher tiers this gen. And I'm like, yeah, that's their only option is to upgrade to higher tiers, guys. Don't brag about... But, of course, I'm sure investors were like, oh, wow. Um, but, uh, I, I will say the, the final, like devil's advocate, I could argue for Intel, which they have to be thinking in the back of their mind too, is eh, maybe Lovelace launches quarter three, but that's the 4090 and like 4080. That's not the 4050 TI and their mobile cards probably won't be out till early next year. So there's still a realm they can occupy. And I know for a fact that AMD's cards they're launching is Navi 33 and 31 late this year. And that's going to start at $400 at the minimum for those cards. So we're talking about NVIDIA and AMD are just going to ignore the sub $400 market this year. So maybe, you know, if Intel really is, so we say charitable because they have to be, at least they'll occupy a space that NVIDIA and AMD are already planning to just ignore until next year. Yeah, and I mean, hopefully for sub $400 buys, there'll be current generation cards now, but obviously last generation cards in the future, if you know what I mean. Like, mm-hmm. we're talking still selling RDNA 2 and Ampere cards when next generation launches. Hopefully, that's something that continues. I mean, NVIDIA did do that with, you know, they continued mm-hmm. to sell the 16 series for quite a while until they had more and more products occupying that that market obviously supply issues made it quite difficult to still buy those cards but they were technically still you know the current gen option Mm -hmm. for people wanting to buy so hopefully that continues and yeah maybe there's you know going to be some option for intel there but then amd and nvidia would theoretically have the option of lowering prices if there tends to be a lot of competition there which may create all sorts of problems but anyway i think it's going to be yeah quite competitive 
across the hopefully across the whole stack moving forward used gpus hopefully will start becoming mm. more of a factor to push down pricing as you know mining is effectively not really that relevant anymore these days so hopefully at some point we start seeing you know more of those cards flood in and yeah that's going to improve the situation for everyone and create more competition hopefully at least so switching gears mustang 3060 tie writes in and he says, ever since NVIDIA got rid of the Max-Q labels, the laptop segment has gotten pretty chaotic. A 140-watt 3070 can beat a 100-watt 3080. A 90-watt 1660 Ti can match a 65-watt 3060. Retailers won't even state a laptop's TDP when it's such a valuable piece of information. Why would NVIDIA spiral us into this dreaded state of confusion? Why get rid of the Max-Q moniker when it was actually pretty helpful to the community? Oh, I think this answer comes down to money, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you can sell a 3080 laptop for more than you can sell a 3070 laptop. So the the absolute minimum that you want to tell people is going to help that situation. Like if you if laptop makers can get away with making a terrible cooling solution that is extremely cheap to produce, yet they can put the RTX 3080 name on it and sell it for maximum money, that benefits everyone in the ecosystem. NVIDIA gets the most money mm-hmm. from selling their 3080 to the laptop maker, and the laptop maker benefits from being able to sell that laptop for the most money, even if it doesn't perform as good as a well-designed product with a lower-tier GPU. So that's why they got... Well, I shouldn't say that's that's why as a definitive because mm. I don't know for sure. I'm not at NVIDIA. I don't know exactly what their thinking was, but... Clearly, there are benefits to doing the system that they've currently got. And the benefits are the laptop makers have a far greater scope to upsell customers without having to bother making the products good. (laughs) Um, And that's just the OEM market for you. Like it's all about, you know, there's been times in the past, even with CPUs and things where, you know, there's two, you know, you get two Core i7 models and there's one Core i7 model like that's even this Intel sells for the same price theoretically on their website. And, you know, the, they just use the, the worst model in their, in their laptop because they can just advertise it as Core i7. They don't need to really worry mm. about what the actual specifications are because no one looks at that. They look at, oh, I'm getting a Core i7. Oh, I'm getting a 3080. Beyond that point, it doesn't matter. All the rest of the stuff they can hide and, you know, all of that. So Max-Q, I think they got rid of that simply because in the laptop you know, ecosystem, it became known as the slower version. Mm. Like it wasn't, NVIDIA tried to make it the efficient version. That's so that how people I would saw say, it. I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, like there are limits to what you can put into a thin and light laptop. Like you can't just go putting 140 watt 3070s into a 14 inch chassis. Like it's just not going to work. But the community saw it as, oh, well, I don't want to buy the slow 3070 or the slow 3080. I want to get the full performance 3080. But then for some laptops, it wasn't actually possible to do that. So, yeah, I think when NVIDIA realized that Max-Q was sort of being used in that way, mm. they weren't keen on it. So they just they just killed it for that reason and made it so, you know, yes, it in- in- introduces more confusion, but they don't have this situation where buyers are avoiding the slow models. Um so it's unfortunate, you know, I would prefer if the TDPs were accurately listed for every single laptop, but obviously there's an incentive for these companies not to advertise it. So, yep, 
consumers get screwed over once again, unfortunately. But yeah, that's just the way these things are. Yeah, I have an HP laptop. Actually, I think I got it almost two years ago now that has a six core i7 and they actually made a big deal about it in the like the nv15t's advertising that they were like you know we actually put a copper vapor chamber heat sink on here in the highest quality paste we could get because honestly guys that cost us an extra 10 15 dollars and we found in our testing that if we use this type of cooling our i7 outperforms the eight core mobile i9 it, and they they're and they did all this marketing, showing it against the Dell XPS, and they're like, look, the Dell Acor loses in multi-threading scores, and it does. But I wonder how much that actually benefited them to just using cheaper cooling in a more expensive i9 with more cores that weren't really boosting. Yeah, I mean, if they want to make the most money, then they would do the other option where they you know choose the high the highest tier part, try and sell it for as much money as they possibly can and make no work to making it actually a good product. Um, so obviously the laptop makers that care are going to do it the other way where they try and, mm-hmm. you know, use the cheaper part, parts and make really competitive, you know, more value-oriented products for people. But I think in the OEM market, you know, obviously it's a different market to enthusiast desktop buyers. People typically do less research. There's even just, you know, not as many reviews available for all the different laptops and even all the different laptop configurations because – companies often see their fastest model. So you don't know how the the tier down model or the entry-level tier goes with these products. It just makes it very, very difficult for people to do the comparisons where something like a well-engineered laptop with the lower tier parts that's beating the the better advertised you know, hardware, it becomes very difficult to sell those products because you're kind of trusting people to compare the products and Mm -hmm. review them and to have that message come out just makes it very difficult people just go into stores and look for the core i7 logo and they look for the high number rtx logo and buy whatever is suitable for them that it becomes very difficult if you're trying to say hey our core i5 beats you know the competitors core i7 very very difficult and you know i always prefer those products but unfortunately there's it's just just the way it is for those markets I will say, though, if you're a dork like me, it makes laptop shopping just super fun to, like, look at all the little specs and compare them and watch. I mean, Notebook Check does, like, thousands of laptop reviews a year. And then I'll look at your stuff and be like, oh, this one actually outperforms that one. So I'm really getting this extra deal. I mean, if you like doing that, it kind of makes laptop shopping the most fun. But most people don't like doing that. Um, Switching gears, though, and power usage here... I I do want to talk to you about this because now a lot of things that we kind of loosely talked about before are becoming much more firmed up. Like, have you seen recent Lovelace Lovelace rumors? I'm personally sure that NVIDIA is trying to prepare cards above 450 watts. And at least as of, I think it was a month ago, I was told they're briefing manufacturers on a 600 watt SKU. So it's becoming less and less abstract that they're going to push power usage this much. It's less of a hypothetical. Like, how do you feel about there being 600-watt graphics cards possibly at the end of this year? Certainly 450 watts or higher. Um, and like, just where do you feel uh, about that, too, when it comes to, like, 
all right, so that allows them to double performance. Like, what does that change your calculus if AMD is something that's 450 or 400 watts versus 600 watts, but loses in ray tracing a little, but wins in raster? Like, how do you feel about these insanely high power usage cards, and how's that going to factor in with all the other features? Okay, yeah, lots to break down here. So let's work through some of these things. Um, I think when it comes to power consumption, honestly, the high-end cards, I've always found that doesn't really matter that much. Like I know people are going to complain about there being you know, the 600-watt GPU or whatever, but you know we're talking about Halo products that are going to cost thousands of dollars and they're going to be bought by rich people. <laughs> so you know 3090s are not high volume products like most people are buying you know 3060 or below tier cards and that's really where the power consumption stuff matters more so yeah okay they're making a 600 watt card it's going to be very difficult to cool you're going to need a massive power supply you're going to need air conditioning in your room to run that gpu mm-hmm. okay whatever you know rich people can deal with all those problems that's fine you're already paying probably going to be paying thousands of dollars for that gpu okay whatever the problem is if they're making you know the the next 3060 type gpu and it's also extremely power hungry what we really just need to be looking at is sort of what's the efficiency like for these products are we actually getting better performance per watt in sort of the the normal mid-range mainstream market that people are buying cards for or is now the 3060 a 300 watt gpu that's not that much faster than what we had previously like that would be bad but if you know they're taking a 150 watt gpu and increasing it to 200 watts but we're getting double the performance i think a lot of people would be perfectly happy with that situation Mm -hmm. so yeah, I guess it's all about just sort of the general efficiency of the cards rather than what the the flagship Halo products are doing. You know, I think people previously have used, you know, back in the SLI Crossfire days, you know, maybe we didn't necessarily get 600 watts, but certainly putting two 250-watt GPUs together was people mm-hmm. were doing that, like, regularly. Um, and the scaling wasn't great. Like, you add in a second card, you add in that 200 extra 250 watts, and in some games, it would offer you like barely any extra performance. So I think going with the much larger GPUs, hitting 450 to 600 watts is a better solution than SLI was back when that was more of a feature. So from from my perspective, yeah, I think I expect people to complain and complain about these 600 watt cards and all that. But, you know, when we're talking Halo products, I just don't think it matters that much and offers it potentially is a better solution than what we had like a decade ago with those dual GPU solutions. And yeah, it just matters about the mid range. Um, what were the other things, the performance boost and stuff? Well, yeah. And I mean, like just to like, cause I agree when I, when, when I heard 600 Watts, um, I was like, okay. I mean, I guess I probably wasn't going to get a 4090 anyways, but then you go, well, then what does the 4080 become? 400? 450? Because I still think that's an issue for most people. And I think at a minimum, that means the 4070 will be a 300-watt card. So does it matter if the 4070 is a 300-watt card and the 7700 XT is like a 250-watt card? I don't know. I guess you might say maybe not. But I'm kind of curious where you if you think there is an inflection point where you go, yeah, this is... Is it 50% more? I mean, and it matters less and less the lower you go down, right? The difference between 100 to 150 is not the difference between 400 to 600. But, like, where do you think that inflection point kind of is in the mid-range where you'd, you would definitely start panning cards and reviews? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's one factor, obviously. Like, if we're comparing 
you know, next-gen GPUs and one brand has a significantly lower power consumption for a similar level of performance, then they're the more efficient card. And again, it, you know, it's efficiency that matters. If one brand has the more efficient product, then depending on how efficient we're talking, um, you know, that's going to be a factor for people. And I think for, you know, th- there's not just the, you know, the number, you know, that mm-hmm. people are worried about. It's about, you know, does it does it mean for a mid-range card that you have to buy a more powerful power supply, which costs more money? Does it mean your power bills are going to be higher, which for people in Europe at the moment is, you know, a factor that's becoming more and more relevant? Obviously, heat is another issue for people um, with those sort of those products. So, yeah, if you had two different vendors that were drastically different in terms of efficiency, then it would that would definitely be a factor for people. And you know, in your examples of you know, being like 250 watts versus 400 watts. Yeah, that's that's a significant difference that would definitely be relevant for reviews. But then, you know, it's just one of many different features. So, you know, we, we have to be talking about two cars that are very similar in performance and features for the power consumption to be sort of one of the talking points. But then again, you know, it depends how much more efficient mm-hmm. you're talking about one product versus the other. So, it's you know, it's really hard to say. It's sort of, it's always a relevant feature, but I think... You know, back in the day where cards from AMD, you know, things like the RX 580 were significantly less efficient than the latest and greatest GPUs, but they were cheap, they were powerful, they ran the current games well, you know, people were able to overlook that as a sort of one of the weaknesses. So it really just depends on, on what the product is like. But, you know, with these cards, yeah, I do think that there's potentially going to be some shifting up of the power per tier, but if they're also shifting up pricing, it doesn't you know, it doesn't really, the, the name doesn't really matter too much. Like mm. if the 4070 is now going to be a, a, from whatever it is now, let's say it's, you know, an extra hundred watts, but also costs, you know, it's no longer the $500 card, it's now the $700 or $800 card. Well, it's effectively just the, the 3080 replacement. And then it's, you know, the power consumption difference becomes less. So, mm. you know, there's all sorts of considerations with these things. Obviously for reviews, yeah, it's going to be important to some degree, but, you know, it depends on all sorts of different things. Depends, you know, the, we've seen the creep of product naming over time as being mm-hmm. something that really needs to be counted in, well, at least explained in reviews that, yes, you know, the, the when you bought your GTX 1060 and you bought that for whatever it was, $250, mm-hmm. and now those cards are, well, on the current market, the same for like five hundred dollars, right? Yeah. You know, the, the the name doesn't really matter that much. It's all about just the the price to performance ratio that you're getting in that specific class. Like, if you have five hundred dollars to spend, is the product actually better than whatever the previous five hundred dollar card was? And then, yeah, for efficiency, is the card more efficient, or is one vendor going crazy with power consumption? The other vendor is much more efficient. Then potentially, for some people, the efficient card would be the way to go. But yeah, that, that's how I sort of always approach these these comparisons, not worrying too much about whatever people mm-hmm. are buying for $2,000 and whatever the maximum spec is, just doing that, that sort of gen-to-gen comparison at the same price and figuring out are we actually moving in a good direction or are we moving in a bad direction? And hopefully this generation we, across the board, get better price to performance and get better efficiency. Well, it's officially spring, which for me and my dog Greasy means getting outside and growing some fresh food in our garden. 
And also, it means having to mow the lawn every week, having to take care of weeds, and just having to maintain the yard in general, which means that, yeah, during the spring and summer months, I like having a quick snack that I can make so I waste as little time as possible now that I'm spending more time taking care of my yard. But I also, of course, want it to be healthy and tasty. And, well, yeah, that's where Vite Ramen comes in. Vite Ramen is an American company that, just like me, likes using fresh ingredients to make meals tasty and healthy and it only takes a few minutes to make and they keep updating their recipe like the v3 edition of beef pho recently to keep ensuring their product is as good as it can be so make sure even if you bought them before you check back at their store and if you do click on the link in the description and use the offer code broken silicon to save 10 percent on a special bundle just for moore's law zed fans that gives you 25 dollars in free goodies and it really does help support this channel tremendously seriously i eat bite ramen it's tasty it's healthy it's fresh and it's especially reasonably priced if you use the Moore's Law as dead deal. Try Vite Ramen today. So on a different um, uh, feature note then, Illyrium writes in, he says, thrilled to have you back, Tim. Where is the honest cutoff point to mention NVIDIA as a worthy purchase due to its ray tracing performance advantage alone? I can't help but feel that those below a 3070 wouldn't want to hit... Uh, a hit to that big of a hit to performance by using ray tracing when playing a game like Control. Yet we keep having reviewers mentioning ray tracing on lower tiered cards. Any word to the wise on this and to prevent people from having false expectations and how important this is at different tiers? Well, you can ray trace on an APU these days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I. I think there's multiple ways to look at ray tracing as a, as a feature addition. I've always seen it be making the most sense for people that are already playing on maximum or ultra settings, right? Mm. Because it has ray tracing typically, maybe not always the case, but it's one of the worst features for the sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, like the quality to performance ratio, mm-hmm. like the quality uplift versus the performance hit that you get tends to be not very favorable for ray tracing like if you were trying to optimize your settings typically you would turn off ray tracing as one of the first settings or enable it the last because the hit is so great compared to the the quality uplift right so for me i've always thought of ray tracing is you're already playing on ultra settings you've maxed everything out the game looks great and you want that sort of next level in terms of you know performance the next level in terms of quality so you turn on ray tracing right so i think the, it, we, we sort of need to look at the cutoff as being that card, that sort of level of GPU that you can run ultra settings and then run ray tracing. If you're running on like a 3050, you know, those GPUs, you can't run ultra settings and ray tracing at the same time. So it's like how how relevant is the ray tracing performance on those products? Like we're sort of talking about running medium settings plus ray tracing does that make a lot of sense? And even cards with you know eight gigabytes of VRAM or less tend to be, you know, they tend to struggle with the ultra quality settings and ray tracing combination because ray tracing in you know tends to increase VRAM usage. So, you know, with these situations, yeah, I tend to think that the cards that can do ultra settings and ray tracing at the same time are sort of the time that it makes sense to buy for ray tracing, which I think these days is probably sort of around that 3070 cutoff or above, ideally like 3080 type product makes the most sense. But for something like a 3050, it's like, 
Do you even care about the ray tracing performance on that card? Like I do it, in Metro it, Exodus. It's not that fast. Edition, I will say that yeah. there were a couple games that surprised me though, like Metro Exodus, where I was like, oh wow, with DLSS, I can actually run this like high settings with ray tracing and 4K. I was like, what? Like, and that's just something a 6500 XT isn't doing. <laughs> I, I tried. Yeah. Yeah. It was just one game though, I suppose. So I mean, I guess to to make it a more specific question, though, when it comes to RDNA 3, I'm expecting, I'm not 100% sure, of course, but I'm expecting it to take the pure raster crown by a little bit over Lovelace, but I also kind of expect Lovelace to have a slight win in ray tracing, at least. I'm not, you know, like, what do you think about a lineup where one company, say, you know, again, yeah, who cares about the 600-watt card? But across the board, let's say, typically uses 20% more energy, loses in raster performance by 10%, wins in ray tracing by 10%, and it has DLSS versus FSR 2.0. Like, do you think at that point AMD can fairly price their competitors at the same price? Or do you still think because of, like, DLSS that they need to charge a little less? And do you think that ray tracing is to this point where... Yeah, look, if one wins in ray tracing by 10%, one wins in raster by 10%, it's a trade-off. Do you see it as a trade-off, or how heavily do you favor that <laughs> ray tracing win? Um, I'll get into a very difficult conversation now, because we're talking about... But we're two of... super dorks with YouTube channels, so this is the type of conversation only we can have. <laughs> yeah, so we're talking hypotheticals for future generations. I mean, there's so many... Yeah, I know you've mentioned here just things like rasterization performance ray tracing performance mm. power consumption maybe dlss's features you know so other things as well like your encoding performance and things but i personally i think you know amd is in a position where their market share is not very good for gpus mm. right like they're getting pretty much destroyed by nvidia even when their you know performance is competitive ish in some areas with something like this current generation right so i think even if they were better at everything they still need to make their cards cheaper. Like that's just, if they want to actually start producing, you know, they start making cards that are, you know, people are buying them, they want people to buy them, then they need to be better and cheaper. I think they were sort of with this generation maybe a bit too early on thinking that they were competitive mm. and thinking that, you know, they can price their cards at the at the level of NVIDIA because people are still just going to buy it even if it has, has an NVIDIA sticker on the box. And now that there's so, availability, that's obvious. They can't, they're staying yeah. in stock at MSRP. NVIDIA isn't. So, yeah, I think even if they had wins in everything, they still have to be cheaper. Well, of course, I don't expect that to happen. There are, are going to be things like mm -hmm. what you're, you're suggesting where, you know, maybe they're faster in some areas and slower in some areas. Maybe they have good features in some areas and they don't in some other areas. Yeah, it becomes that point where, you have to, yeah, just assess every single element of the GPU in all the different areas to see what sort of level um, we're getting to in terms of how competitive are AMD. And even then, you know, that, that just depends how much cheaper they have to be. Um, at least that's my opinion. I think AMD investors probably would have a different opinion mm. and they'd want to be selling their better products at the highest possible prices that, that they can but, you know, if they're only selling like 20 to 25% of the GPUs on the market, I think they kind of have to start, yeah, increasing their mind share, increasing their market share to have, you know, if they can continue executing on hardware, at least be 
more competitive down the track. They can't just can keep conceding these markets to NVIDIA over and over again and sort of, yeah, trying to think that they're as competitive as NVIDIA when they perhaps quite quite aren't quite at that level yet. I think we saw something similar with like the Zen series. Like Zen mm-hmm. 2 was pretty good. Like performance was very competitive with Intel at the time. Obviously didn't win in everything, but it got pretty close. And those products were often very, very affordable, which then allowed future generations to start moving the price further and further up as they kept getting more and more market share. You know, Zen 3 was able to launch at prices that were, you know, much closer to what Intel used to charge and they were still getting the sales was I don't think they'll be able to do that with their GPUs just yet. They're, I don't think they're in that position. No, I agree. I think they put the cart before the horse with RDNA 2 that they really, they look, they got away with it because everything was out of stock. <laughs> but yeah. it's obvious now that they would not have gotten away with charging the same price as NVIDIA if things weren't out of stock. And I, it's funny, I was talking to one of my contributors today about Navi 33, and at this point, I think I am pretty much ready to just unveil the entire specs. I mean, this is, you know, without saying everything, it's it's a. I think it is a sub 400 millimeter squared card, still on six nanometer Navi 21 performance, lower power usage. It's really cool. They're using a last gen node for an RDNA three product, and I think it's, you know, it's gonna have less RAM. I think it can totally make good profit margins at 400 dollars and bring something around a 6900 XT at least in 1080p to the mid-range, but I know they're considering charging $500 for it, and I'm just like, I am convinced. No, AMD. It ha- this can be your new RX 480. It has to be 400. You cannot charge 500. You have a chance using a last-gen node to pump out a ton of cards. Just, just do it, and don't get ahead of yourself here, because no one's going to... I'm really pretty confident no one's going to want it at 500 compared to 400. Yeah, and I think the market will will tell them that pretty quickly. Like if they they produce a five hundred dollar card that no one wants, then you know they they're quickly going to be able to um, you know realize the mistake that they've made. I think this generation, I, I really hope that companies don't take the wrong messages out of what's happened with this yeah. generation, because I don't think we'll see the same conditions that we've seen for this generation for the next generation in terms of thing. Obviously. I still expect cards to be very, very difficult to find for many months after launch, but I don't expect there to be the same pressures for demand and, you know, hopefully the supply shortages continue to improve and mining continues to be less of a relevant factor. So, you know, if AMD is looking at their data and they're seeing, oh, we made all the, all the cards we made were sold at all the prices we said this generation so that, therefore, we can do that the same next generation and price our cards just like NVIDIA's cards and and get away with it if that if that's their takeaway from this generation i think they'll be in with a bit of a shock because i think it was mostly just people buying whatever was available mm-hmm. like oh i can't buy a 3080 well let's see if the 6800 xt is available oh oh the you know i can buy a 6600 xt i can't buy anything from nvidia i think that played a lot into this generation and yeah if they get ahead of themselves and they start trying to be super competitive on pricing then their cards will just sit on shelves that, you know, if availability is better this generation, they just will sit on shelves. They'll have to lower prices and sort of, you know, whatever you want to say for, for that situation. But yeah, so let's hope that doesn't happen. I hope they, they do continue to create, you know, the value option, at least for this next generation, where I think they need to start winning people over to realize that, you know, AMB GPUs can actually be a good option. 
It looked like you held your tongue there. You are allowed to swear on this show. I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to encourage you to, but you are certainly allowed to. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I, yeah, I, I really am confident as well I, that we're not going to. I think people forget it's usually hard to get graphics cards after they come out. I mean, you couldn't get a 1080 for MSRP for the entire holiday season. It hit $800 yep. average street price, and that's what's normal. And I think. That's what we're going to see here. And, you know, it's funny. I, I know recently, as of this recording day, like, there's rumors, oh, Lovelace is launching sooner than people might expect. But I think the rumor's always been quarter three, or even early quarter three. Um, at least in my Lovelace leak, I said production of Ampere may even stop in May. And I'm finding that more and more easy to believe because when I asked some distributors today, like, what do you think about Lovelace, you know, launching in, like, you know, not in two months, but in, like, one month and a half or something, they're like... Well, I think there's very little chance of that when we have entire storerooms full of unsold Ampere cards that we are really worried we're going to have to lower down to MSRP. And I just, this isn't the same situation as before the launch of last gen. I, I really think people are underestimating, even if the price is at a certain level on Newegg, how much of that is a game of chicken between these sellers right now that they're really, really worried NVIDIA is going to announce Lovelace before they can sell these cards, frankly, for what they paid for them to even stock them. So I really, and then, the, and then we're going to see the flood of used 3070s for like 300 bucks on eBay or something. Oh yeah. Can't say I'm too upset at that situation. No. <laughs> I mean, distributors have been price gouging customers for this generation. So who really cares about whether they can sell their cards or not? That's just, uh, just the way it is, I guess. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree. I don't think this generation is going to have the same conditions at all so yeah but obviously cards are still going to be hard to come by mm -hmm. you know if someone's going to send you the soundbite and be like i couldn't get it on launch day you lied to me well no you're not going to be able to get it on launch day and even if you could um you know pricing is probably not going to be at msrp for quite some time you know, I, you know nvidia has been testing the waters with a few unrealistic msrp starting as far back as the 2080 ti with mm -hmm. you know oh it's a thousand dollars and then most cards sell for twelve hundred dollars so you know i i expect that to continue but i certainly wouldn't be thinking that six months to a year from the launch that you still can't get those products mm -hmm. and especially if they do launch at a higher price so yeah even if they you know there's a q3 launch of whenever, whenever it's going to be a I don't know. I, I don't know if any of the leaks are accurate or whatever. But even if you know July is an accurate you know mm -hmm. month that they announce the products, you know when is the when's the month where you can actually just go buy one? Like that's, if it's that's actually launching in July. Where's the leak of a cooler? Right. I mean, I I, I think it's yeah, definitely it's like, paper launch if it's July. I mean, come on. Yeah. Like, oh, are we getting cards on store shelves in like early August, but they're producing like a hundred of them? Because that's not really mm -hmm. that's not really a launch. Like, yeah, I know it's technically a launch, but what matters to me is like, when can you buy these cards? When is it easy to buy them? And then second to that, when is it easy to buy them at the price that they said it would be? Um, and those two dates, yeah, I mean, I think the I think the distributors probably still have a few more months until we reach those sorts of those sorts of times. You know, at the very least, you know, towards the end of the year, I wouldn't be wouldn't be too surprised if that those situations don't happen until sort of the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Well, so speaking of hard to get products, I'm going to skip ahead to this here. QH Freddy writes and he says, guys, what do you think AMD, why do you think AMD has been so slow to push Rembrandt U laptops? Do you have any in the pipeline for reviews? And I did look around and just in general, I have to agree with 
what a lot of people submitting questions for this episode have said, which is that I haven't paid attention because I'm not in the market for a laptop right now, but it is hard to find a Rembrandt laptop anywhere. Like, really yeah, hard, actually. Yeah, it's hard to find a lot of laptops. Um, even, you know, a lot of companies are still even launching, you know, their older lake, like low power older lake stuff in many mm. months from now. Um, so I think there's, there does appear to be some supply and manufacturing issues at the moment. I, th- I'm pretty confident that we should have, at least what I was told many months ago is we should have seen Rembrandt U laptops by now. Like they should have actually been on the market by now. I don't think AMD was intentionally, announcing them ages ago mm. and then waiting until yeah you know, whatever the I don't know what the current rumors are saying for when they're going to be available but let's just say next month or something um yeah I don't think they were expecting that to happen um I should be getting a 6000 U series laptop sh- shortly for testing I don't know whether that's going to be like next week or mm-hmm. next month or whenever but within the next couple of weeks I think is when we'll start seeing the performance numbers for the 6000 U series stuff, like hopefully that's the 6800 U. But as for on, on, you know, store shelves, that's a totally different question. I've got no Mm -hmm. idea for that. So yeah, I think there has been a few manufacturing issues for these sorts of products. You know, this laptop generation has felt very slow to get a lot of the products that we'd normally expect out, even for Intel and Intel usually for their, you know, they've had less supply constraints for their own stuff manufactured on their own nodes. So, yeah, I don't think it's like AMD trying to push silicon to weird other products that they're trying to sell. I think it's just there's all sorts of issues at the moment with, you know, the ongoing effects of COVID and manufacturing in China and stuff like that has been very complicated. Even for things like monitors, things have been getting delayed and low volumes for products that have come out um onto the market early so yeah i expect that to continue to be an issue throughout most of this year so hopefully if people are interested in those laptops there will be something to buy in the next couple of months but yeah it doesn't seem like it it, the market definitely doesn't seem like it was a couple of years ago where you'd see like the back to school launch and suddenly there's like 500 different Mm -hmm. laptops all immediately available with the latest and greatest hardware yeah that really hasn't happened this time which i guess is a bit of a disappointment but that's just the the way that the shortages are these days. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much I really have to say about Rembrandt. Uh, I, I was kind of expected to talk about it. Do you you? We've been going for a while, and I don't know. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts since our last discussion. I know we discussed it after they announced it, but it's like, it's good, right? More efficient than Intel. I don't know if you have any th- thoughts on it since it's out that have changed since when it was first announced. Yeah, not really. I mean, we haven't, I haven't actually been able to do that much testing, to be honest. I think I've, from the 6000 series, I've only looked at the, the HS series part, which was sort of around Alder Lake at that, you know, the scaling was obviously indicating that it would be more efficient at lower TDPs mm-hmm. than what I tested. But around, around that sort of 35, 45 watts, you know, it's fairly similar to Alder Lake, and then Alder Lake was obviously faster for the higher power consumption levels. So yeah, I don't think anything anything there's changed too much. Um, again, I, yeah, it just it's really about the t- being unable to get products in to test for these generations. Like even getting in P series and U series parts from Intel has been challenged. So yeah, hopefully we'll be able to compare those two parts in depth and sort of see exactly where the U series sits for these two companies. But it certainly seems to be the case that AMD's got the advantage in the lower tiers and lower power tiers, I should say. 
and Intel in the higher power tiers. But again, it's hard to make that conclusion when I haven't actually confirmed the sort of trends that we saw with the other parts just yet. So hopefully we'll be able to do that soon with with the at least the P series versus U series type comparisons. Yeah, it almost feels like by the time Rembrandt's highly available, we're going to be talking about Zen 4 APU launches. <laughs> like, Yeah, probably. I mean, let me then skip just ahead to that then. Last time we spoke, AMD uh, demoed a Zen 4 chip running all-core boost um, in Halo above 5 gigahertz, which, of course, Zen 3 typically only boosts all cores between 4.3 to 4.7 most of the time. So... I think right there was proof just right away that they're going to bring at least 10% higher boost clocks with Zen 4. And now have engineering samples leaking with boosting about 5.2 gigahertz. Um, and I've leaked that. I mean, I'm I'm confident boost clocks are going to be 8 to 15% higher with 15 to 25% higher IPC. So I think we're getting at least 30, 30%, not 300, 30% higher single threading at a minimum with boost all, you know, all core boosting allowing for even maybe higher than that in multi-threading. I, I don't, I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on like another generation late this year, bringing 30 to 40% performance increases over Zen 3 again. And and I think we're going to get at least that next year as well. Like what do you, what do you, excited about most when it comes to Zen 4? And, and then also, I'm just kind of starting to wonder, like, when we start talking about how much we care about performance increases, when we're already, the overwhelming majority of CPUs are just blowing games out of the water. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to the, the performance uplifts that yeah, we're talking about here, it's kind of, it sounds really high, right? Like, you're talking 30 to 40% gains, but then you think about what, you know, how long ago was zen 3 when zen 4 comes out it's probably going to be roughly two years ish Mm -hmm. maybe a little less i I don't know exactly when it's coming out but two years roughly and we've also had older lake which obviously for single thread performance is currently faster than zen 3 especially in productivity workloads i know you know if you count the x3d for games you know we get into Mm -hmm. sort of a complicated battle but for most productivity workloads, Old Lake is quite a bit faster in terms of single thread performance. So when you think about like, oh, we're getting 30 to 40% more performance than the previous generation Zen product, well, they kind of need that because they're, they're, if they're like 15 to 20% behind Intel, mm-hmm. then you're going to need that minimum to match them. And then it would be kind of a bit of a fail to just match Intel with a product a year later. So you'd want then to get like another 10, 15, 20% on top of that, which is then where you sort of see the 30 to 40% figures sounding like, well, that's pretty much what AMD needs to do, really, <laughs> yeah. uh, especially if they're competing up against a next-generation Intel part as well because Raptor if they're Lake, just coming yeah. yeah, if they're just coming and matching Older Lake and then Raptor Lake launches is much faster, what was the point? Like, they just look silly. Like, the, their performance targets have to be significantly higher than the current Intel part from a year from, well, it's not quite a year ago now, but almost a year ago. And then on top of that, you know, that's going to be extra percentage compared to Zen 3. So, yeah, I mean, I would hope that that, those are the sort of performance gains that we are getting and current CPU competition is red hot. So if we see that each year, then that's good. But, you know, I guess those are the performance targets that each of these companies need to have. As for whether it's actually important to get like, 30% 30% more mm-hmm. performance than current CPUs. I mean, obviously for productivity workloads, that's going to be great because they're always limited. 
So the faster you can run these things like video editing or mm-hmm. all the simulations, whatever, that's going to be great. For gaming, you know, it really depends on the gamer because if you are playing competitive games and you're running, you're trying to get the highest frame rates in these titles, then you are going to be CPU limited today. So faster CPU is going to give you more performance. That's going to be a big boon. But obviously for a lot of single-player titles, the more you know, those sorts of games doesn't really matter that much. Um, and we'll need to see, you know, significant improvements to gaming, you know, just the general games themselves in terms of how they utilize the CPU. But then again, you know, we're about to come into this generation of GPUs where supposedly the GPU is going to be twice as fast. Well, if you have a GPU that's twice as fast, you're much more likely to be CPU bottlenecked. And if you're already CPU bottlenecked and you're suddenly buying a GPU that's twice as fast and you're not getting twice the CPU performance, you're going to run into an issue. So, you know, I think it's always, you know, it's it's hard to say sit here and say, yeah, it's not going to matter because, you know, mm-hmm. it may matter in some games. We may start seeing crazy Unreal Engine 5 games that just smash the CPU to smithereens, especially if game developers start going back and targeting 30 FPS on consoles. And we're sitting here as PC gamers being like, that's trash tier. I want to play, you know, 120 FPS or higher. Then maybe we will need that CPU performance. So I don't think it's going to hurt at the very least. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think I think 30 hertz is dead. I think it's just done. Well, I hope so. I mean, it should be. That's for sure. But I, I'm starting to think about like a recent guest I had on Hardware Numbers who does some pretty extreme CPU overclocking and then test games. He was talking about how like an Alder Lake i3 is as strong as an 8700K. And it's just hilarious yeah. to think that it wasn't that long ago that we were debating if an 8700k was worth it you know over like a 3700x or something and now we're, we have i3s at that level that are a hundred bucks what happens when we have a generation let's say 40 percent better than this this year and then 40 percent better than that next year what happens when we have like i3s that are as strong as a 5800X 3D. I just wonder if at a certain point for gamers we start going, can it do something else? Like, do you think that's going to be an inflection point soon? Or do you or do you think developers really are just going to make use of it that quickly? I mean, I don't know. I don't know for sure. I think, well, the game's always going to be held back by the lowest common denominator, which is the consoles, right? So the Zen 2 CPU... Mm-hmm. You know, it exactly. looked good when yeah, you know, it looked good when that when those consoles came out because the previous CPU was just absolutely atrocious. But you know, it's very quickly going to be the case where the Zen two cores in those consoles are not going to be that powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we're also in this kind of transition period where a lot of games coming out today are still built on old, like fairly old game engines. Yeah. And game engines that were developed for an era where CPU performance wasn't improving that much each generation. So if you think about when, you know, like Unreal Engine 4 was being developed, the that development process was going on during what, like the Skylake era, where you know, the developers were saying, oh, yeah, we're sort of sitting on this sort of level of cores and, you know, Intel is sort of producing 5%, 10% gains per year. We don't really need to make a game engine that's going to heavily utilize CPU effects 
because we're not expecting to get major performance uplifts. And now we're in this ecosystem where it's very different. Like performance uplifts are very significant in terms of CPUs. So, and you can see from some of the things that you know, Unreal Engine 5 games can do that there are elements to those engines that appear to be very CPU demanding. So I think over time, as we see games transition from last-gen game engines that were developed for primarily for the last generation of consoles for very weak CPUs and no CPU advancement, we move to engines where game developers are starting to you know, think about next generation, think about developing properly for these current generation of consoles, thinking about developing properly for an ecosystem where there's 16 core CPUs and 30% gains every couple of years. You know, I think we'll start to see developers utilize those CPU resources better. But again, like lots of games are built on very mm. old game engines and there's just no point radically you know, patching those engines to use these new CPU resources. It's going to take you know, complete overhauls of those engines you know, being built for the ground up for modern technology for things like you know, direct storage, like really utilizing the, that sort of technology requires big engine overhauls. So, yeah, I, th I think there's, there is going to be a period of time, maybe a couple of years, where these CPUs are like massively overpowered for today's games and it won't make a lot of sense to buy like, you know, high-end or even mid-range, you know, Zen 4 chips because they just destroy current games. But then hopefully once, you know, new engines start coming out and developers start realizing that, you know, oh, yeah, we can have games that have like, thousands upon thousands of npcs at once that we'll start seeing situations like that mm -hmm. yeah and i mean I, I think about i think about how i think 60 hertz is going to be the standard and so then basically you're saying i don't know 3700 is basically the standard for kind of 60 hertz gaming without a ton of things turned up um at the same time though the the wild card really is asset streaming and like if we do see some of the fabled PS5 features actually come into effect, like do we need those extra cores to move in data quickly from an SSD? I do I suspect what we're going to hit soon is kind of an awkward period, almost like what happened late, like PS360 through PS4 transition, where there were like some games that had like one gigabyte VRAM requirements. And then you had other games that were like, you need six threads and you also need eight gigabytes or it won't even like boot or something. Like, I, I think we're going to see some games that, like you say, like just, I mean, I I'm playing the new Borderlands. The thing still just makes you load individual areas. And, and then you're going to see other games where, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, if not, I know Zen 4 Genoa has some sort of, like, SSD controller thing, but like, at the very least, Zen 5 Consumer and Meteor Lake have some kind of IP block on there for moving data from the SSD quickly. You have these weird Meteor Lake i3s that in some games outperform last-gen flagships, but then other games where you still need really fast clock speeds. I think we're going to get another one of those periods where everyone's blaming bad PC ports, and it's going to be odd. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if people want to see more effects, like more NPCs, more AI, more simulation-based effects, then you know, you're not going to be able to run those games at, at 120 FPS, 240 FPS. And then, yes, people will probably complain about the optimization and you know, say it's a bad port and that. But you know, I think when we get more into the, the ray tracing era of games, when games start shipping with 
genuinely good ray tracing effects, which you know, there's probably a handful of games, you know, a small percentage of the total number of ray tracing games today where that's true. Hopefully in the next couple of years, there's many more games where ray tracing makes a significant improvement. And I think as we move into more and more games utilizing ray tracing better, it's going to be clear that those games are not going to be able to use those ray tracing effects on consoles. Mm -hmm. So if developers want to really go down the ray tracing path and make games that significantly utilize it, they're going to have to be developed primarily with the PC in mind and then obviously turning down lots of stuff for consoles, Um, which, again, you know, it's very possible with the architectures being the same. So I think hopefully we see similar things with the CPU as well in that game developers are thinking of making games that are highly scalable. Like they previously we've seen lots of games where they just, you know, you get the console experience and then it's either on PC you can run it at a much higher resolution and frame rate or you can turn up a few things slightly that are sort of tank your performance a lot but don't really improve your visuals all that much. I, at least I hope. I don't know whether this is actually going to happen. I hope the next gen of games, the next coming mm. years of games, is far more scalable where we see genuinely massive quality, like the quality of the game mm-hmm. improving when we're on a PC that's got significantly more resources available to it, where we see, you know, the standard game for consoles is like mostly rasterization with like maybe one ray tracing effect enabled, maybe like a limited number of NPCs, limited simulations and stuff. Then you bring it over to PC and you see, you know, suddenly the ray tracing effects, you know, the majority of the lighting instead of just a small part of the lighting is ray traced. You start seeing, you know, oh, the, the, those open world city type games where they, it really feels like there's an, an realistic level of cars and, and people, which you just can't do on CPUs, the level of what's in the consoles. And then you see simulations and all those sorts of things as well. So I, I hope that happens. But again, you know, PC gaming has to be in a strong position for developers to warrant making those sorts of um, you know, investments into producing those sorts of effects and stuff. But I think with engines like Unreal Engine 5, it should be a bit easier for developers mm-hmm. to make scalable games that run can run on really low-end hardware, hopefully even things like the Steam Deck, and then scale well up into you know, realistic-looking settings and simulations for PC, hopefully. Yeah, I think, when, like, just thinking ahead here, the, like, what game would do that? Because certainly... If anything, people have seen PC gaming is really popular right now. So I think yeah. there is an argument for trying that again. But I think like a GTA 6 is a game that comes to mind that maybe has the budget and the reason to try for that. Or maybe a Metro game or something like that. Because the only thing I, I would have to point out is I don't know what's going on with Battlefield long term. And a lot of <laughs> other like... Of the biggest mainstream shooters, I sent a screenshot of an email I got uh, from, you know, Activision to my brother today laughing like what? And I captured what the hell is happening to multiplayer shooters? And it just said Godzilla's in Warzone. And I'm like, what? What is happening to my multiplayer games? You're just like vomiting like Saints Row DLC into every game I play. Like, what is going on? And and so that's the only thing I would say is a lot of the most popular games that could benefit from really pushing PC have kind of turned into these freemium models. So I think GTA 6 is probably a game that would do that. But outside of that, it's almost double-A single-player games, which would be the ones who would probably push the envelope the most. 
Yeah, I mean, with with multiplayer games, I think developers have realized that you want to target as many people as you possibly can, um, which means you sort of have to look at the lowest common denominator, which for a lot of people is still like a very old CPU running a GTX 1060 type GPU, Mm -hmm. or even integrated graphics if you can scale your game down that far. So, yeah, I think a lot of multiplayer games will still head down that sort of route and sort of try and you know make the games run on potatoes basically but hopefully you know there are some games where we see more advanced features take hold especially if there was something that was designed for current gen consoles in mind that wasn't built on older engines that was built for something like you know a playstation 5 xbox series x exclusive multiplayer game potentially you would see more you know pc you know, type features come across and have a more more graphically impressive experience there but as well you know we've seen a lot of people over the last couple of years upgrade their cpus to things that are genuinely much more powerful moving to the you know some sort of zen processor there's lots of people using aim4 hardware right so a lot of those people are going to have quite reasonable cpus and hopefully that will shift the the lowest common denominator from like a 7700k type quad core thingo to something that's much more powerful and then hopefully you know those even games that are trying to go for the the freemium model or the target every single gamer we can model you know they don't have to target a, a quad core or dual core anymore they can target a sort of a console level um you know quad core eight core sorry you know zen 2 processor or something like that um I think that would work that would work well. And and then again for PC you could have, you know, game modes where there's many more people in mm. the games, like Battle Royales where there's not a hundred players, but there's five hundred players or whatever. You know, those options would be opened up with faster PCs if they wanted to to go down that path. Um I think they tr- with the latest Battlefield, I know that that was a massive fail, but they did increase the player count, didn't they? Which caused yeah. a few performance issues. Um, I did find that, yeah, on my laptop with that 6-core i7, it is better to play at 64 players than on my 3950X, which just has no trouble running 128 players. Yeah, so, you know, there's there's always options like that for, for PC. But, yeah, I think it's really the, the, the big-budget single-player games where we'd see benefits like that. But, again, it really depends on the engine because... Hopefully, you know, game engines of the future will have more automated tools to easily increase, you know, geometry density or mm-hmm. um, NPC density, car density, where, you know, you don't have to have a developer going and hand-tuning, you know, the difference between 100 NPCs and 1,000 NPCs. They just click a button and suddenly the game is running with 1,000 NPCs instead of 100. Uh, that would make the, that scaling process for PC much easier. All right, so we've been talking for quite a while here, so I'm actually just going to skip ahead here to this final question that I think would be a fun one to end it on. Uh, Chris Rich writes in, and he says, for the three main companies in this space being Intel, AMD, and NVIDIA, have your impressions of them changed in the recent years? What would you say are their greatest achievements and failures in recent years? What would you say their biggest strengths and weaknesses currently are? Hmm. Oh, big question. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think my impression of AMD has probably changed the most as it has for most people in that, you know, AMD used to be, especially on CPU side, obviously not very competitive and kind of a bit of a joke. 
Um, and, you know, they've managed to completely turn their company around. Like, I don't think if we were sitting here in 2014, mm. we'd be thinking, oh, AMD is going to turn their company around massively and become you know, a major competitor in many different areas. So I think, you know, that's sort of been one of the major things where, yeah, my impressions have changed of the company. But I think it's almost changing again a little bit now where mm. they're sort of, they've gone from the, we need to accelerate our company to being competitive and produce really good value budget parts to sort of being more on the, oh, we're in the, kind of in the dominant position in some areas for things like CPUs. So we can, you know, start to roll back some of the value options that we were offering and start targeting, you know, super high margin, expensive, um, you know, parts. So I guess that's kind of how I see AMD at the moment. NVIDIA, they're, they're just the same company. They're just, <laughs> they're just, I've operated just like, like military efficiency doing the exact same thing every single time. Um, that yeah, there's really been no surprises for them. I think Intel, yeah, sort of kind of the opposite of AMD. I'm, I was a bit surprised at how far back they were. They sort of fallen maybe over the last five years or so. But at the same time, a lot of their parts are still very competitive despite all of the challenges that they've had. So I think yeah, one of the you know if we talk about their biggest strengths and greatest achievements, I think one of Intel's greatest achievements has been you know when they've been hamstrung by their process technology that they've still managed to have parts that aren't like significantly slower than their competition on much more advanced process nodes. Like people always laugh at the power consumption mm. of like four and all the 14 nanometer plus, 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 plus stuff. But the fact that those parts were actually competitive with like seven nanometer parts in terms of performance is pretty impressive in my opinion. I think that's, yeah. that's a bit of an achievement for them. Um, and then, yeah, wh where do we go for like NVIDIA's achievements? They just seem to, execute well on most of their most of their um things that they're they're targeting and they they put a lot of effort into features and um even if the features don't make sense when they're launched like ray tracing or dlss you know they don't you know they always they always seem to be the forefront of those sorts of things and give people sort of the tech demos of the future hopefully they don't do another turing where they make people pay to access mm. the the tech demo significantly but at least they do you know they, they clearly put a lot of research and development into those areas which i think does benefit the ecosystem as a whole so yeah that's kind of where i see them in at the moment, all those those three different companies, bit of a bit of a uh, juicy question to to finish this one off. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. I wrote down like my thoughts ahead of time, and I, they're pretty similar to what you said. I'd say with Nvidia, I just think it's their consistency is what's impressed me. That they even Turing, you know, which people lambast, but it's like, where was AMD when Turing launched? They, you know, they had yeah. no competition, and on effectively the same node, they managed to bring a full new generation of performance again on and that's that yeah, was a pricing issue it wasn't a, it wasn't a hardware issue with Turing. it was the the pricing yeah and i think with nvidia though i don't have much negative things to say outside of like you know just turning into like a amd fanboy channel where i just call them evil over and over because i don't really think they're evil i think looking back on it though i we need a I think in a few years, the one thing that maybe we'll dock NVIDIA for is if they don't have chiplet GPUs yet, because I do see this as possibly finally something where AMD can really start to hit back in a way that is hard for them to keep competitive with, in a similar way to what they did to Intel, except that I don't see NVIDIA becoming inconsistent. I see them still executing on time, even if AMD has some kind of advantage that's took them like a decade to build up. It's too soon to say, though, on that one, if that is 
good foresight or if you know next year they'll be like hey blackwell is four chiplets jokes on you who knows but um the thing with amd is i just i'm happy they've managed to compete at all <laughs> and they didn't go out well, of business yeah. but their consistency leaves a lot to be desired and intel it's just <laughs> they just make so many weird and random mistakes their consistency is just all over the place but the one thing i have to give intel is i5s are still below three hundred dollars yeah yeah i think each company definitely they've you know it's not like we can sit here and say there's one company that's like completely shocking and terrible and the other you know another company is like awesome and doing everything right you know all of these companies have areas to improve and all of these companies have had products over the last couple of years that have been impressive in one way or another i think you know going back to some of the nvidia discussion i think yeah chiplets may be an issue for them i don't know if they're developing that as a hardware technology. I'm sure they're working on it, you know. Oh, I'm sure they I'm sure they're working on all sorts of next, you know, very future looking technologies because they always are. Mm-hmm. I think as well for them, um, if they start getting genuine competition in the GPU market, you know, more serious competition, not they don't just get 80% of the sales of GPUs just straight off the bat every single generation. I think their closed source approach for a lot of their features is going to become more of an issue because the way that they've been able to I don't know with get away with is the right term to use, but get away with all their closed source exclusive features is because they're the dominant player, right? Like they had the most GPUs sold. They have the most money to incentivize developers and people to use their features. But if they're not in that position anymore, then continuing to use that approach will look a bit silly because if other companies continue to do more open approaches, as we always know, the open approaches tend to, you know, win out over time, um, as we saw with so, sort of like the G-Sync versus FreeSync thing and many other things in the past, but obviously that's a, a more recent and very relevant example. Yeah, I think if NVIDIA, if it comes to more of a 50-50 uh, market share ecosystem, which, you know, we, we could be talking decades away mm-hmm. for that from that sort of being a reality, then, yeah, pr- producing more closed source things is, is not going to be the path forward. And I would prefer to see them produce more compatible and open features because i think the thing that frustrates me with nvidia is that a lot of the features that they come up with are genuinely very good mm-hmm. features like they're really excellent they, they're forward thinking they, you can get they mad often... at them for how closed off g-sync was yeah. but where was amd with variable refresh rate thank god they forced the question yeah that's right that, that's exactly how i see it really you know amd it's kind of like amd needs to start producing those forward thinking features like they need to, and they're doing it to some degree, but often the features are sort of not as impressive as sort of like a DLSS 2.0 or something like that when they launch. But I think, yeah, AMD needs to sort of put in the time and effort to develop those really forward-looking features so that, you know, they come out with a new feature and everyone's like, whoa, that's really impressive. People haven't done that before. You know, we've seen AMD execute on on hardware and producing really good performance but I can't think of a time where I've seen a feature from AMD where I'm like, whoa, that's like, that's a look into mm. the future. Um, even something like SAM, which is sort of like the, you know, resizable bar type feature. It's not really like we're looking into the future of performance when it gives like a three to 5% performance uplift. It's like, okay, that's, like, that's sort of a neat feature. Okay. Other, other GPU developers will definitely enable that. But, you know, where's the sort of, we're first to ray tracing from AMD. That's what I want to see from them. And I think for NVIDIA, it's kind of the developing their features, but making it 
sort of an open and available for all people to to use, which again kind of goes against their commercial interests. So it's asking a lot of them and they've never, as far as I can remember, done it in the past. So, but yeah, that's where I'd like those two companies to go, I guess. Yeah, it's weird to like look at AMD's graphics card tech and almost feel like the console makers are trying more radical new rendering yeah, ideas are. than AMD is. Yeah, they are. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And you wonder why they haven't pushed that. Although again, at my recent Zen 4 leak, it, it it sounds like there is an IP block in Genoa that could theoretically do things similar to how Sony describes the PS5, where they have an accelerator that allows you to move data from an SSD to a graphics card without having to touch the CPU cores. It sounds like that might be there, but then the question is, is that only in Genoa for like professional apps, or are you actually bringing that out in a Phoenix APU and Zen 4, because AMD's adoption rate here, at least in enthusiast circles, is pretty dang good with Ryzen. They really have CPU mindshare. So now's the time to leverage that sort of an advantage if they're ever going to get around to doing it. Yeah, I agree. I think they need to, you know, and it helps with mindshare as well. Like it's not just about producing mm -hmm. the features and having forward-looking features. It's about, you know, you want to be perceived as a company that's constantly innovating and producing the best quality stuff, not just in terms of performance, but in terms of, you know, people are going to have access to the, the latest and greatest thing. And while that doesn't matter for a lot of buyers who are just after price to performance ratio value products, you know, it, it does help with the perception. I think that's why NVIDIA is such a successful brand is that it's not just that they execute on hardware and performance consistently, but they also are at the forefront of these features. You know, it hasn't just been ray tracing. It's been things like tessellation and um, HBAO and anti-aliasing and things like that where they've consistently tended to have those features first or at least better performance in those features first. So hopefully... You know, if AMD can find some sort of feature like maybe that accelerator that you're talking about, that they can be like, you know, we're at the the forefront of you know data, you know, I/O type stuff. Um, those are the sort of areas. And you know, Intel with Thunderbolt, another example of you know mm -hmm. Intel being at the forefront of connectivity. Um, you know, I think AMD needs a few of those features. Yeah, but we'll, well see. Don't... Hopefully, they've got some stuff. Well, yeah, but what about Mantle? <laughs> yeah i mean is that not as important as like g-sync or dlss come on mantle was a good feature but they kind of you know it wasn't used in that many games like they sort of released it and they're like go do with this now everyone we don't have any money so everyone go do what you can with this technology and let's hope for the best um well, yeah i of course mostly meant that as a joke i remember I, them making a big deal about it though for about a well, year there I think it, you know, you, you you bring it up as a joke, but it also is kind of a good point as well because Mantle was mm. an innovative, you know, let's get closer to the GPU hardware and sort of was at the forefront of what became Vulkan or Mantle effectively became yeah, Vulkan. And then obviously DX12 as well utilized a lot of the, the, I think they were in development at the same time. So it's hard to say like they, mm. DirectX12 looked at Mantle and was like, let's do that. But it certainly was at the forefront of the closer to the um, silicon type uh, processing for games for the future. The issue with them was that they just had absolutely no resources to try and make Mantle into a sort of a dominant force. Like if that was an NVIDIA technology, they would have made it oh, yeah. extremely exclusive. It would have been, they would have been pumping it out in games saying like, you know, oh, we can, you know, we, we use less 
overhead so we can get better performance on us you know so obviously now they're in a better position to be able to capitalize on stuff like that not that i want them to make exclusive features i definitely don't want them to do that but that at least be in a position to continue to develop a feature like that and make it stronger and in more sorry more games for people to use but we want better features and if they do bring out something where they're like hey this loads your games instantly now and not only that but it actually improves frame times because it can move in the data quicker just even while you're moving around yeah. even That'd if be a big win. you know if it's mostly for AMD stuff that would certainly be that would push all of their competitors to try to do similar stuff at the same time as well so that would be awesome um yep all right well i mean that was the i uh, didn't expect us to talk that much about mantle um <laughs> that was uh all of the stuff i you know that we for the most part we're supposed to get to um unless you have anything else you want to talk about but otherwise uh plug your channel you know tell everyone where they can find you oh yeah hopefully people have heard of hardware unbox before but if they haven't obviously we're just on youtube just type into your search bar go to go hardware unbox and see our videos and performance analysis and stuff obviously there's Throughout the back half of this year, there's going to be some pretty major launches. Mm -hmm. So we'll be trying to cover those as in-depth as possible. And yeah, hopefully we'll be able to revisit some of the interesting things we've found over the past couple of years. Things like you know the driver overhead situation with NVIDIA. Hopefully we'll be able to revisit that with next generation GPUs to see how the situation plays out there. You know, how does it play out for things like um, ray tracing and things like next generation image upscaling or whatever's going on we'll try and do those sorts of analysis for you so um yeah check out hardware unboxed yeah i hope you're f gonna find time to take a vacation in the next couple months because after those two months it's gonna go <laughs> lovelace raptor lake rdna3 M meteor lake and then what zen 5 and the uh, and of course alchemist is in there hypothetically and then, of course, uh, we'll get Battle Mage and uh, probably Aerolake. So I think we have all of those in the next, like, 20 months. So I hope <laughs> you find time for a vacation at some point before or during that. Oh, hopefully there'll be time for a break. But, you know, I think over the past couple of years, it's been, well, since the last, you know, major launches we saw at the end of 2020, it has been fairly slow for hardware launches. So I prefer it to be a bit busy, a bit more exciting things to talk about on the channel. And I think that's that's going to start happening in the sort of second half of this year. And then obviously for the next 20 months, as you've been talking about, <laughs> we should be getting some exciting things. But yeah, that's just, that's great. Just makes the job more exciting and more interesting to to get on and make videos every week. Well, find those videos at Hardware Unboxed on YouTube. And um, otherwise, you know, remember, this is Moore's Law is Dead. Make sure YouTube didn't unsubscribe you. Uh, subscribe to Broken Silicon on your podcast app on choice and give us a review. We have a Patreon as well. And thanks to everybody for listening. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Good to be on. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law's Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law's Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com.
If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Medlin, Drita Full, A.V., Anthony Greffa, Greg Pataki, Muhammad Al-Kawari, Brett Jones, Aaron Close, BBC 6800 XT, Big Sexy, Jan Rauner, Daniel Hyde, Ivan K., Brian Riggleman, Joachim Hagen, Sam Miller, Deke, Thomas Rupp, The Mechanical Philosopher, Terrence Harrods, SNES Chalmers, Tom Bailey, Greg T. Wanchuk, Andrew S., Dane Galanowski, Daniel D., MJB1, Eric Jackson, Justice Brennan, Sammy Good, Valko Malev, The Boss, Haas, I Love You, Lennon, Jim, Spamton, G. Spamton, Jonathan, Jeremy So, General Drips, Blake, Franco Frederick, Matthew Lazier, Jensen Wang, Nathan Mose, Azuris, Gregory S. Acker, Dominique Cock, Jake Dude 23, Jake Martin, My Name is Nobody, Caillou Markelli, Hardforroom.com, Original Ross, Slicky, Stefan, David Cowden, Ricky Tans, Christopher A. Butler, Jeremy Scalen, Sarcaster, Stefan Hart, Jason B., Meat and Pork, Stu, Tim Robb, Luis Correa, Ian Clifford, Jesse Jeskowiak, Travis Gooding, Holden Mobley, Nanyan, Chris Witch, Deep. This Learners, Mads, Zutsu Taylor, Stephen Coates, Michael McGee, Benjamin Oshley, Sammy Malas, Greg, Ah Trini, Patrick Grow, Amiable Chief, Brett Summers, Denny Nugent, Arcane 311, Tommy, Kundin, Brucha, Mark Mitchell, John Wissink, Damon Peterson, James Anderson, Y Trui, Mark Raidmaker, Seth Domins, 3DS Boy 08, Hal Buma, Narithiel, Matthew Landavaso, Stefan Koatic, Henry Shang, Judson NF7GOS, The Grid, Michelle Pell, D31337 Antics, Jason Bowen, Noah, Nicoella, Hexapuma, Chrysantine, Jerem, Barriera, Zabit03, Desis, Thomas A. Teef, Klein, Brit, Inian, DNA Tech, 50C Desert, Axel Ciceros, Royce Meyer, Charles Russell, Reginald Ari, Morphysis, Teak Autumn, Jackson Miller, JSMMH, Sandy Garrido Saunderson, David Eastland, Fire Falcon on YouTube, Andre Jacques, Gaiman Since Reagan, Jeff Settler, Eric Osborne, Loophole 35, Winstar Joker, James I. Raider, Corey Leonard, Sammy Malas, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. <laughs>